Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome to Greenwashed. Here's to another week. I have with me my co-host Don Nicholson. This is Jaspreet Bopperai. And a reminder, you can text us at 2057, as in fact a whole lot of people have done last week, or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Welcome, Don. Yeah, g'day, Jaspreet and listeners. Uh, it's fantastic to be to be back, um, draining the swamp as we do, uh, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> do I hear some Trump speak there? <laughs> yeah, a bit of Trump speak. I That was his best statement ever. I mean, I... I know that it sounds a bit weird, but when he made that statement, even though I didn't like his brusque sort of New York style, uh, he only had to have that one line. And I thought, why didn't I think of that? Because effectively, <laughs> that was what I thought I could do when I was in Wellington, was drain the swamp, get rid of the reef fish. Didn't didn't spare one and didn't drain anything, but <laughs> we're still trying. <laughs> uh, job we are. Uh, this weekend, just gone, I've enjoyed watching the live stream i'm down in southland for anyone who doesn't know and the nzdsos conference they call it the truth justice and healing conference happened in auckland and boy i wish i was there live it seems there were well over a thousand people there don but uh, even the live stream was was a great watch and i know you are hosting them uh, next week you're hosting dr asim Malotra and linda wharton in mm. queenstown yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that. I, I'm not over it, uh, uh, the whole topic nearly as well as you and others are, but I'm looking forward to it. And gee, you've just scared me if there's thousands. Um, it bothers me. <laughs> no, that's, could be that's the biggest event in my, Could be the biggest event in my life. I, I, yeah, but, but all, I think it's great that we are slowly unbundling what COVID has done to a lot of people. And uh, as recently as the last few days, I spoke to a gentleman who has, with his doctor, analysed why he had uh, horrible turns um, that he'd never had in his life. But each turn was six days to the day, well, obviously six days after his injections for COVID. So he was just in another one. And, you know, I think we've all got these people in our midst that have got these experiences that may be unreported. And... You know, like we talk about climate a lot. I mm. think it's about getting to the truth. I mean, history is history, but th there will be some damages that need to be exposed. And, you know, if these people can have the fortitude to just put their put their hand up and say, I've got a story to tell, it would be great. But anyway, going back to, to Frankton, I'm looking to forward to chairing that meeting. You're going to have a busy Monday next week. So for yeah. anyone who's uh, around this area, Don will be hosting that one on uh, the next Monday, 25th of September, 6.30 in the evening at uh, Frankton in Queenstown. And it is, it's uh, a bit different that we've begun today's episode, Don, talking about COVID. But for me, the similarities in the COVID narrative and the climate narrative, the threads just weave together so well. The greenwashing, the brainwashing has been so intense. And now, the very same thing is now being pushed on to all these um, equity, gender, and all of these ideologies. It's the wiring diagram is so convoluted. Yeah, it's so intense. It's hard to follow it all. Um, you know, brainwashing, greenwashing, whitewashing. You name it. It's uh, 
it's all there and don don am yeah. i getting a bit of white fragility over there oh yes uh, yeah <laughs> couldn't care less about uh, color or or identity really but um it's it's interesting how we are paying for all of it we're mm. pay- you and i and our um our life uh, we're paying for all these reef fish uh around us and that's why i like the term drain the swamp these mm. these swamp dwellers uh um fatting themselves on our effort and i'm sick of it couldn't agree more mm. now before we go further into the show uh, and today don and i have lined up with us uh, a speaker from the new newly set up methane accord owen jennings and we'll be going to him a bit later in the show jill booth and i will bring up we're tackling stg6 water and don't haven't you all heard enough about three waters that we'll be delving a bit more into how that came about from the united nations sustainable development goals perspective but first feedback boy have we got a lot last week between the in case anyone missed it the music that people here refer to was uh, us playing the ode to the ets from the motu research uh, one of their policy advisors and uh, that was quite a listen because we have a couple of uh, people saying that that song was who uh, mark that song had me pissing with laughter brilliant just breathe it made my morning reminded me of the lady in the us who was supposed to be in charge of the disinformation project what's funny is their naive sincerity <laughs> someone else said what's a what an abominable cultist anthem for a abominable cult and then a third person please stop this awful music it's upsetting my animals <laughs> oh gosh it, the, but their narrative is upsetting more than our, our animals actually more than our cows it's really wound me up and mm. uh, we need to make it stop and that is why that that anthem the ode to the ets from the motu research team that we played last week actually shows you the level of uh, sheer stupidity that they seem to think we'll fall for anything yeah well it gets worse uh, i watched the um i think it was the apple presentation this week on mother earth a uh, mother <laughs> nature sorry i mean round a board table uh, and there was this person trying to put uh, people in their in their place because they weren't meeting their their promises uh around climate and um mother nature was having her last say on them so she's coming back uh, in the next uh year or two to do an- another reassessment of the apple performance let's see how that works oh gosh yeah that let's see much. how that works i think we might just share that for a moment don mother nature walking into the why, apple office why not why not yeah just visualize it <laughs> Here she comes. I hope we didn't keep you waiting. Mother Nature. Mother Nature. Welcome to Apple. How how was the weather getting in? The weather was however I wanted it to be. Let's cut to the chase. In 2020, you promised to bring Apple's entire carbon footprint to zero by 2030. Henry David Thoreau over here 
said we have a profound opportunity to build a more sustainable future for the planet we share. I think our 10 o'clock said the same thing. They all do. All right. This is my third corporate responsibility gig today. So who wants to disappoint me first? Well, we've got some updates we are excited to share with you. Materials? Status? Is there a materials person here? Yes. We are in the process of eliminating all plastic from our packaging by the end... Let me guess. 50 years from now when someone else is left holding a bag? By the end of next year, actually. When we're also currently using 100% recycled aluminum in the enclosures of all our MacBooks, Apple TVs, Apple Watch... What about iPod Shuffle? Uh, well... It's a joke. Don't you people make Ted Lasso? Oh, that's a different group. Um, we're also phasing out leather in our iPhone cases. What about Brando over there? They phasing you out too? Oh. <laughs> What's next? Gosh. Uh, <laughs> crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Oh my stuff. god. Just, just when I think, you know, it can't get any crazier, they come up with something like this. Well, and just for listeners' benefit, because they couldn't see that, obviously, um, Brando was a guy wearing a leather jacket. So oh. she was, Mother Nature was having her say. But yes, uh, yeah. So if, you, if, you, if you want to inflict the whole three minutes on yourself, look at any of Apple's socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, wherever. It is all around. And there's Mother Nature coming and taking a corporate uh, social responsibility index or what Don and I have spoken about, the ESG or the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and the environmental social governance factors. Take oh. your pick. Yeah. And of course, uh, in recent weeks, we've read how the ESGs are sort of failing. They're not sort of just hitting the mark for some companies, especially in the US. But I noted that our friend Larry Fink uh, has talked about how we'll use a different language We'll talk about oversight and influence and, and words like that now. So maybe the term ESG just might fade away uh, out of the the uh, uh, of our eyes and ears, but there will be another undertone coming your way soon. Uh, I was looking at the Wellington Council website, Don, and yeah. they have this uh, website. They have this careers tab on their website under which there is valuing inclusion and diversity and they say they together we thrive says wellington council and some of their initiatives are developing and launching a well-being program cultural competence online training maori pronunciation training video classes from beginner and up treaty of atangi training piloting unconscious bias and courageous conversations about race training whoa did you know wellingtonians your council not just takes care of your roads, rubbish, bins, water. It does all of that. And the Courageous Conversations. This is a program from, you guessed it, the U.S. that talks about racial equity transformation at the workplace. And it began initially 30 years ago with the original focus on transforming the pre-K. So that's kindergarten onwards, schooling in the U.S. to put in race in higher education, what we call as the critical race theory. And they have now moved on to corporations, educational institutions, their website says, in Canada, New Zealand, and Australia as well. So your council does so much for you. And you thought all they do is rubbish roading in water. 
Yeah, smart, aren't they? And uh, there was a statement made in one of those pages. Uh, the first thing necessary in teaching is a master. The second is a pupil, pupil capable of carrying on the tradition. And we, we're about greenwashing here, brainwashing, whitewashing, you <laughs> name it. It's uh, it's right there in that statement. Um, it's having the pupils willing to be captured. And there's plenty of them here, isn't there, Jaspreet? There, there is plenty. But mm. I also looking at the job descriptions because you know me. If I'm going to the careers tab, I'll look at that. And they had posted a job, the Wellington Council, on the 23rd of August, talking about a behavior change officer for the Atakura, the first to zero initiative. They want to be the first city in the country to have net zero emissions, you know, shades of what you just listened to from Apple, Mother Earth. And the role describes we are looking for an additional behavior change officer. You will join two senior behavior change officers and a change specialist. And we work with our schools, communities, workplaces, and Mana Fenua to deliver behavior change interventions, encouraging more people to use sustainable forms of transport, walking, cycling, and public transport. You will work with colleagues at the Greater Wellington Regional Council and Houston Police to influence positive change. Nudge units at your service. Oh, nudge units are all around us, uh, and there's a lot of lot of um, senior nudge units and <laughs> junior nudge units, and oh, yeah. then you've got kindergarten nudge units. They're everywhere, and then you have uh, the granddaddy of them all, the United Nations SDG nudge units. There, you know, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's interesting. A recent trip to Australia, I observed no one um, really filling their bike lanes. Mm. Um, cars are plenty. No electric. I never, to be honest, saw more than, and I traveled 1400 Ks from um, Noosa to Sydney. Mm. Also, I never saw more than a handful of electric vehicles. Mm. And uh, New Zealand, they uh, you travel our region and there's electric vehicles everywhere. Um, uh, but but here still we have cycleways that aren't being used either. I don't think the red world is as ready as we think for biking everywhere. We're not the we're not downtown. Um, uh, let's think of I'm thinking of a city I have been in where the cycles are everywhere, like Amsterdam. And, and, yeah, and Amsterdam and Delft and places like that in the Netherlands. Yeah, they've got a flat. Um, environment, you know, city, uh, and they bike everywhere. Well, it's great, but mm. I didn't see that in Australia, and I'm certainly not seeing it in New Zealand. Uh, and and that's the the unique thing about Australia at the moment is they're just getting on. They don't seem to have the, all the hang ups that New Zealand's got, like this outfit in Wellington is uh, trying to put upon us. But no mm. doubt they are there, but because I didn't probably. Do the complete due diligence on it, but um, <laughs> not units. Yeah, Gosh. we Jill and I also because I, I won't attribute this feedback to Dawn because it was her and I who dis, uh, discussed the gender uh, ideology in SDG five, and we have someone who have just a second. Hi, hi, Josh Preet. We women are exceptionally productive, aren't we? And, and that's what it was. We were told we can do everything, and that's what Jill and I were talking about, because women suddenly, women's live from, I think there was, I saw this graph somewhere, a slow progression from saying women are below men, women are equal to men. 
women are better than men now men are women whatever is is going on there this the slow transition feminism is certainly not uh, done women a lot of favors and jill and i discussed this issue on in terms of how gender equality is not just gender alone it's actually men dressed up as whatsoever they decide to coming into women's spaces and women no longer feeling safe there we've also got uh, a couple of feedbacks from people with whom the discussion on the farm murders in south africa touched a chord and don and are trying to get someone uh, from one of the farming groups in south africa to come on greenwashed and talk more about this because mm. our media showed us heck doesn't speak about uh, exactly how unbelievable is the carnage that's going on there and there's again talks of racial equity and no one is getting punished for that and it's uh, the whole diversity equity thing turned on its head here yep yep um it's yeah it's something we've got just want to clearly bring to people as much of this worldwide information world information as we can and coming back to nz the one from the wanaka uh, gentleman uh, mr sinclair talks about how his granddaughter i think it is came home from school um preaching to her mother uh stuff that um seems outrageous around climate and the climate anxiety is what this person's sort of talking about um mm. it's appalling to to think that our children are being so uh influenced by by this narrative that's just eating into them so look i i sympathize with with this gentleman and his family um just just i think the the recommendation from me is to um just keep eyes and ears open and make sure that you calm the stuff down because it it's just getting out of hand it is i have someone else and i i should say at the outset i haven't looked into this but there's a feedback we received via text in oklahoma the first transgender principal has been appointed he does shows at nights called chantel he reads and plays with children and he's been charged in the past with having child porn this is so wrong just breathe keep up the great work lots of women just want to have babies and keep home it was made wrong yeah isn't it mm. i i don't know about i i do know about that the transgender principal has been appointed but you know i just look at principal as a principal that is it i have i will never go to my workplace and start talking about my gender ethnicity and all of this i've not been hired or you know appointed for that i i wonder since when this has become a thing and we see streams of this whole uh, gender narrative now also being uh, pushed into climate discussions don <laughs> yeah uh, well it's ridiculous isn't it and uh, of course um you've you've found as you are good at doing um information to show what new zealand's doing uh around um its input into cop 28 the conferences of the parties 28 in dubai Yeah. Um and of course this is through the minister James Shaw at the moment and whether he's in power after October 14 who knows. Um but it doesn't matter. This is what New Zealand will be taking to COP28 regardless who of, of who is in power. The, I doubt that bureaucracy will change. Um No, they say governments change bureaucrats don't. And yeah. this document the Don and I will be getting our teeth into <laughs> is the 
the report of the Cabinet Environment, Energy and Climate Committee for the period ended 21st July 23, so this year, and it was proactively released on the 4th of September. Mm. And uh, this report is titled An Update to Aotearoa, New Zealand's Approach to International Climate Change Negotiations under the portfolio of climate change, of course. And while this is 29 pages of reiterating the same nonsense, the same things, 10 times, in fact, at the same, you'd have fossil fuels and then fossil fuels and then some more fossil fuels and then some, some South Pacific. We won't, we'll try not to bore you to tears by reading the whole thing. But there's a few clauses that I can't just skim by without sharing. So, uh, I will begin with <laughs> the first one that caught my attention. Climate change, this is clause 29 on page 12. Climate change is the single biggest existential threat to the Pacific. Strengthening Pacific resilience and supporting an empowered Pacific transition are critical objectives for New Zealand. The Pacific is also our strongest ally on the need for urgent global climate action. Existential threat, New Zealand. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? The words are all designed to build that climate affair, just ham it up, mm. build it up. And of course, we're so used to having the United Nations Guterres um, uh, standing boiling. In, in boil, <laughs> global boiling, but standing on Tuvalu and uh, up to his knees and in, in a rising sea level. Um, I mean, it, it begs. Beggars belief of this stuff, how they can really have it up. But of, of course, they're talking also in these documents or somewhere I, I read where the Blue Pacific by 2050 is another strategy. So uh, that will be strategized to death and the climate won't <laughs> give a damn. It will not uh, give a damn. Plus 34, Dawn, on page mm. 13. The science, they say, oh. the science as assessed by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is unequivocal. The window to secure a livable and sustainable future for all is rapidly closing. Every increment of a degree of temperature rise matters, and there are feasible, effective, and low-cost options for mitigation adaptation available. <laughs> low-cost? Low-cost? <laughs> low-cost, and the point is they have declared that the science, what science? The science as assessed by IPCC is, they say, beyond reproach. That is it. Single source of science. Mm. None of them were funded by um, by um, the machinery that wants them to come up with that statement, are they? Not yeah, one of them. And where have we heard that before? Single source of truth. COVID, oh, yeah. what Don and I today surprisingly began our talk with, from the single source of tr COVID truth, there's a single source of climate truth here. <laughs> yep, it's it's outstanding in its field, this, this document. Yep. And you go to Clause 43. <laughs> what's what does that say it's around fossil fuel phase out cop 26 countries agreed to a common call to accelerate the phase down of unabated coal cop 27 narrowly failed to expand this to all fossil fuels there is mounting pressure for an outcome on fossil fuels at cop 28 coming up there is a spectrum of positions emerging falling into three main camps First camp, all fossil fuels should be phased out, led by some Pacific countries. <laughs> Clause two, or 
um, cause too. Unabated fossil fuels should be phased out, led by the G7 and EU, i.e. fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage can remain. And, and that's why carbon capture. Yeah, the third one, a minimal, a minimal ambition position that fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage is as good as a transition to renewable energy i.e. expansion of fossil fuels can continue. <laughs> well, India and China didn't get their memo for, uh, you know, stopping a unabated, the phase down of unabated coal and fossil fuels. But tell me, they are now debating a new airport at Taurus. We are talking of, uh, you know, we need to grow food production, sustainability, there's food shortages. How in the world do with zero fossil fuel do you to agriculture and tourism? You just don't. Do you? Well, not currently. We don't. I mean, who knows what could power um, our machinery in the future uh, if it's not even, el- yeah. If if electrifying stuff was so good, it, it will it will take um, it will evolve and maybe get there. Who knows? But at the moment, we're a long way off having that sort of future. Uh, uh, you know, we we've got um, when you you linked in tariffs there for a moment. I'll just go back to that. I don't understand why, and and you know, I'll get pilloried for this. But Wanaka has a fine uh, airport that they run warbirds over Wanaka on. Why can't that be expanded? Why does tariffs? Why does Christchurch Airport have to buy all the land in tariffs that's um, under food production at currently? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So productive soil suddenly you can't subdivide your property. Do you can build a house, but you can't subdivide that house or that property away because it's productive uh, land, productive soil. Most of the country is being overwhelmed by this. Again, this red tape, and yet plant pine trees build another airport. There's no problem at all. It, oh, it makes no sense. The zoning seems to be okay if it's um, uh, got got some uh, capital growth in it for someone. Yeah, but yet clearly zoning uh, also inhibits growth for others. So. Zoning, I understand the need for sort of zoning and, you know, if, if you're building infrastructure, but the narrowing down of um, opportunity. Private property rights. Yeah, yep. opportunity of, from private property is wrong. Anyway, this document goes on um, to talk about the phase out of fossil fuels. New Zealand advocates for the, for the global phase out of fossil fuels. Just seems seems ridiculous. But and we could be the old fossils here, Jasper. <laughs> we could, we could. Fueling the fire. Clause 48, the New Zealand needs to advocate for the Pacific to spearhead a global just and equitable phase out of fossil fuels under the Port Villa call, Vanatu, for a just transition for a fossil fuel free Pacific. Again, to my point, how will you have we reached that uh, stage already? And again, even if whether or not you believe in fossil fuels and all of that, the science is the science that's being told by IPCC. You are not supposed to think for yourself. You are not. And that's that's what this whole nonsense is about. Mm. And, and the Pacific uh, countries predominantly involved in this are Fiji, Nui, Nui uh, Solomon Islands, Tonga, Tuvalu and Vanuatu. Um, well, there's thousands of other islands involved in the Pacific, but anyway, they're the primo ones by the look of it. Then we come to the financial straitjackets, clause 59 and 61 on page 17 of this document called New Zealand's Approach to International Climate Change Negotiations. 
New Zealand should advocate, continue to advocate for alignment of all financial flows, so all borrowings, lendings, all transactions with climate objectives, including public, private, domestic, and international finance. Climate finance from New Zealand, uh, it says that is to a developing countries is an obligation under Paris Agreement. So if suddenly a whole lot of money starts going to the islands, whereas you find your own roads patchy, your own water issues there, sorry, we have signed up to something that they'll tell you it's not not a part of your law. It you're not obligated, just an agreement. But it is going to change the way you live, going to affect your quality of life. But then, as Auckland Council said last year, 1,967 participants in a Colmar Brunton poll, the council commissioned, so that's less than 2,000 of 1.7 million people agreed that they'd be willing to make drastic, in fact, the word used was radical changes to save the climate, uh, you know, catastrophe. So maybe, are you ready for uh, dramatic changes, radical changes to your lifestyle? Well... I doubt it, but some some people are willing to be that way. Some people mm. are willing to be that way, and you know I've got no problem with them if they want to live that way. That's fine. If they want to be um, non, you know, if they want to consume less and they want to, um, you know, perhaps be, you know, they'll they'll be happy. Um, that's mm. fine, but don't be unhappy <laughs> with everybody yeah. else who wants to be happy uh, doing things the way we do it now. So. The strange thing about all this climate financing, Jasper, is there's been pledges made over many um, former or earlier conferences of the parties that don't seem to have been matched with reality. And I think there's a sense of frustration building that um, countries haven't been putting their cash up. And, yeah, I'm thinking long may that continue, actually, because as mm -hmm. a taxpayer, I don't want to see... Um, your money or my money chasing um chasing a fable mm. uh, i'm not i'm not denying the climate changes uh, that's uh, and i don't um link you know everyone talks about the weather and floods and catastrophes and things like that that are clearly uh, on decline rather than the opposite way if you look at the science it's they're clearly declining um i don't need our money chasing um poor investments uh, that they seem to have been so far around climate. I mean, it is 0.04% of the mm. Earth's atmosphere is carbon dioxide. That's four yep. parts out of 10,000. So somehow we seem to think we sort those four parts out, the remaining 9,996 uh, will take care of themselves. Amazing how that science works, Don. Oh, amazing. And, you know, we're now seeing um, more documents or more work coming out about the effect of CO2 um, in the mixed atmosphere um, and what it can do in terms of increasing temperatures. And it's a variance now. Uh, if you double CO2, it's a variance of sort of between 0.6 of a degree and two degrees and nothing to worry about. But, um, you know, so I don't see the sense in spending uh, how many quadrillion was it that um, John Kerry's um, <laughs> question came to? It was $1.4 quadrillion to fix a non-problem. Comply uh, till you die comply till you die so yeah i, I uh, think I, sh I should go to the part because uh, we've uh, got to get owen on soon i think we should go to the part that concerns you don indigenous people i am guessing you're indigenous to new zealand i'm an import you're indigenous well i would hope so i mean i can't see why i'm not uh okay. my four my bears um came here in about 1860 i gather i think i'm about four generations on from that i think uh, i'm indigenous yeah. 
Is but there I any? Don't, I don't make anyone address the hackers at the beginning of a council meeting. <laughs> right. So, plus 65, page 17, Don. Indigenous people are disproportionately impacted by climate change risks, but can play a leadership role in climate solutions. There's your chance, Don. Yeah, there's a chance, all right. I mean, I I just don't get it. Um, you know, colonialism is, a, is all bad. It's, uh, and, and, you know, people that perhaps have um, some sort of metaphysical understanding of the world can make things better for us at the moment i do yep. to me this is just nonsense uh this stuff i mean you, you link it into co-governance and and separate mouth maori health authorities and all this stuff digging we're slowly digging ourselves into the deeper hole and so, it just concerns me i hope this election can sort this the ultimate nightmare for any government would be a united people and that's what they're doing there's nothing mm. else to it mm. plus 72 dawn Talking about the latest science, it says in developing these recommendations, uh -huh. I've considered these submissions. Metrics are not slated for discussion within the UN climate change process till 2027. So till then, New Zealand, we are working on IPCC4 report metrics. And uh, for that was 2006 or was it 2008? It's a couple of decades old. But we will mm -hmm. go more into this when we talk with Owen. I yep. want to go into the diversity thing uh, here before we completely run out of time. Specific rights, such as the right to food and water, and the rights of indigenous people were highlighted. Submitters raised the need for meaningful inclusion of people with disabilities in the UN climate change process. Now, I understand disabled toilets. I understand disabled parking. But isn't climate just climate, regardless of whatever disability you have? Will it yep. affect my mate who uh, drives a specially modified van? She's, she's quite independent, though. Uh, will it affect her any differently than it affects me? She lives about, uh, she's an Invercargill, she's about 90 k from me. Well, I'd hope not. I, I don't see the, pop, uh, the climate change huh? between her and you too much, and nor between you and the rest of the world. So, um, no, this is, it, it's virtuous nonsense again. And then they go to clause 89.3, page 21 of this document called Aotearoa New Zealand's <laughs> Approach to Climate Change Negotiations. It says, gender. New Zealand will support outcomes that promote equal rights, <laughs> equity, and gender-responsive climate action. Oh. Gender-responsive. So you're a man. I'm a woman, to the best of my knowledge. How does climate affect the two of us differently? I'm damned if I know, but su <laughs> but su the fact that someone wrote that has me even more angry. And I know we've got to end this soon, but there's one thing that does bug me. When it talks on Clause 71, we received a high number of submissions from Groundswell Movement calling for New Zealand to advocate for GWP star measurement for methane emissions. Conversely, <laughs> environmental NGO submissions call for faster action on agricultural emissions, and many called for bio genic methane to not have special treatment. In developing these recommendations, um, you, you've highlighted no notice was taken. So the NGOs um, won the day by the look of that at the moment. So Groundswell, you're going to have to lift your game. And hopefully the methane science accord that Owen's going to talk about soon um, will help that. Um, and we, we need to realise we cannot keep arguing within the allowed narrative. That's right. That's right. And so um, it's about keeping the story really simple. 
there's only one story in town when it comes to methane emissions, and that is that it's irrelevant. It's mm-hmm. totally irrelevant, as is uh, nitrous oxide, and there's no way we should ever be taxed for it. Uh, it's certainly not going to affect our gender um, uh, and our <laughs> climate security. Um, um, interestingly, we've also got Jackie Flannery from the Irish uh, Rural Association on today, yep. and she is giving an Irish uh, a perspective from Ireland on um, uh, farmers' rights. Uh, farmers' rights, effectively, you know, different place, same story, same same arguments. Really, uh, they have different different way of. Um, operating but mm. in the end and the in the at the pinnacle of it all they've got the same issues that they have to meet around climate and emissions and environment absolutely so yeah don and i will be back in a minute with our next guest owen jennings thank you so much for joining us this morning 2057 or inbox at the rate reality check dot radio if you'd like to contact us Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Listeners, welcome back to um, RCR, Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. And today it's our pleasure to have on our show Owen Jennings, a former ACT MP, former uh, uh, Federated Farmers President, uh, former farmer from the West Coast, I think, and I think uh, a former... Oh, a person that who still does his missionary work around the world. So uh, welcome, Owen, to RCR Greenwash. Today, we're going to talk about your new campaign called on, on methane called the uh, annual organization called the Methane Science Accord. And tell us why you felt it necessary with your group to set up yet another organization. Yes, well, uh, it's, a, it's a good question, isn't it? And uh, I'm supposed to be retired on... Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind being uh, out in the garden and uh, mowing the lawn. But, you know, once you've been in public life and you've encountered injustice and and when you've seen how the leadership uh, have let uh, a group down, in this case farmers, and let them down really badly, then, you know, you've got to speak up. And um, perhaps because I am retired and a one sort of distance away from the day-to-day farming, I've been able to, you know, do the research, uh, look back and see what's happened in the past, and also perhaps give a little advice about how to conduct a campaign. And uh, what we intend to do is put together as many numbers as we can from not just the farming community, but uh, in New Zealand, we're very fortunate in that many, not just in our rural towns, but in our mainstream towns, there are a lot of people who understand agricultural issues, understand farming, and are not just sympathetic, but they're very supportive of where farmers are at. They understand the pressure farming's under, the regulatory nightmare that uh, farmers are facing from one end of the country to the other. And uh, they're keen to put their name to a cause as well. So what we want to do is broaden it out, make sure that the politicians in the run-up to the election knew full well exactly where farming is at, where farmers' thinking is at on the methane issue, and to know that that thinking has broad support from all around New Zealand. 
that's that's a fantastic ambition. I mean, isn't it interesting that uh, for over 20 years now, I've been sort of at the forefront of this stuff. You were at uh, the forefront of trade reform when you were in Federated Farmers and, and you were in the, involved in this stuff, uh, even as an ACT MP. Why has it taken so long for a bit of honesty to come to the fore because that's what you're really trying to do here you've you've assessed the um current science the latest science because we all knew there was something wrong with the rhetoric that new zealand's uh, started out at about 47 percent. now they're talking 50 percent of the new zealand inventory we all suspected we were being used why has it taken so long for this uh i call it honesty i just perhaps that's a, a an overused word for this come to the floor why has it taken so long do you think well it's interesting if if you actually look back uh, and and you know even, even look back to the 1980s and 90s when the climate thing first sort of emerged and in those days we were worried about getting too cold um but now of course it's, it's all about about heating and, and if you look back and look narrowly just at the methane issue it wasn't particularly well understood. There's not a lot of science, not a lot of basic science relating to methane. And, and, um, and so what I found was that um, there, were, there were just a lot of people saying, climbing on a bandwagon saying, oh, methane's bad, it's 28 times, it's 100 times. I mean, you can find as many multiples as you like. There's plenty of scientists with good credentials saying, that the methane molecule is only four times the power of CO2, but there's plenty that um, you know want to multiply it up by even bigger numbers. The point being that we don't understand much about uh, methane. We don't even understand much about the weather and the climate, to be perfectly honest. But what we found was that uh, in in the mid um, uh, years of the uh, of 2010 to 2020, a number of scientists started to look at methane in a fundamental manner. And what they found was that the earlier numbers that were being thrown around were actually wrong. Methane wasn't as powerful as they thought. And and I think the thing that's hugely disappointing about what's happening at the present time is that our representatives, whether they were government representatives, industry representatives, um, who went to IPCC meetings, went to United Nations meetings over the years, did not stand up for New Zealand and the New Zealand cause. We're unique. We're the only country in the world whose economy is fundamentally anchored in grass-fed ruminants. The only country. Ireland's got a fair bit um, on its side, but it's it's a different economy. It's much more uh, broadly based. And what we should have had was representatives who went out there and batted for us, that stood up for New Zealand, that negotiated a particular case for a country based on grass-fed ruminants, and they didn't. And now we're suffering for that, and we've got too many people who just jump on the bandwagon and, and waggle their finger at us, accusing us of all manner of things without a clue about the underlying science. That's right. Oh, and I can't help but mention this uh, weekend just gone. I was in a meeting, in a public candidate meeting called by Federated Farmers at Winton. We had uh, all the parties represented. Uh, Joseph Mooney is a local national MP. We had new faces for ACT, Labour, 
the Greens and minor parties between, you know, NZ Loyal and Vision. The first question, because Federated Farmers kicked off the events of the evening with saying, what will you do about, uh, you know, supporting Southland? We are a big uh, contributor to New Zealand's economy, 2% contributing to well over 10% of the export receipts. And Joseph Mooney's answer was, because he he's the one, you know, incumbent, and he started off saying that they'll support farmers' national will by modern technologies and all of those. And uh, then it was questions through the floor. And my question was, as a Joseph, carbon dioxide, 0.04% of the Earth's atmosphere. And the time horizon, we are looking at the emissions, 180, 200 years out of what? Five billion odd of the Earth's existence. Mm. That's a minuscule proportion of since we've been alive. Why are we doing this? This makes no sense. And he says, well, he says, I can answer that right away. 193 countries have signed up. If we don't do this, we cannot, we just cannot play ball. We will be absolutely hammered. I said, well, why? I said, a, a company like Nestle won't pick up uh, Fonterra products, and I'm a Fonterra supplier, my husband and I. Because we don't have, you know, the right credentials. Yet Nestle has absolutely no problem picking up milk from Punjab, where I come from. Milk that is 10 times less carbon efficient because in India, it's it's usually house cows, you know. An mm. average cow is producing about 0.8 milk solids a day. They are not the efficient producing, milk producing machines. We've made them. Absolute silence. It's like we can't trade. This is it. We've all signed yeah. up. You need to remember 193 countries. No one has ever stood up for us, ever. Yeah, that's an interesting point you make. I mean, what I find fascinating is that, you know, nobody really understands how minuscule methane is. I mean, mm. it's just, it's, let's just start there with how minor, how insignificant the methane molecule is. And, and um, you know, I, I often use analogies because, I'm not a scientist, but I can read and I can understand. And um, and I always related the amount of methane in the atmosphere to uh, an an air flight from Auckland Airport to Los Angeles, because a lot of us have done it and sat in that metal tube for 10 or 11 hours, uh, traveling that 10,470-kilometer trip. And I say to people, if the atmosphere was was a trip, from Auckland to Los Angeles. That's the whole of the atmosphere. How much of that 10,400 kilometres is represented by methane? And I'll ask at a public meeting, and I'll get, you know, 10 kilometres, 100 kilometres, or whatever. Well, i got to tell you, it's 28 metres. I mean, the plane isn't even off the ground. It hasn't even completed its pushback. That's all methane. That's not ruminant methane. That's all methane. Ruminant methane is only 14% of all ruminant methane, and New Zealand's contribution is 1, 1% of that. So if you're taking, comparing New Zealand's ruminant methane from all our cows and sheep with the total atmosphere, we are 25 millimetres of a trip from Auckland to Los Angeles. That's an inch for us old fellas. You know, one inch in 10,000 kilometres, and you tell me that we're going to decimate 25% of our sheep and beef industry and 5% of dairy for something that's w relatively one inch to 10,000 kilometres. 
you've got to be joking just on that score alone. Yeah, well, and, and, and isn't it interesting, Owen? Um, I'm aware of those analogies and I'm aware of uh, the recent science, uh, you know, when I say recent, the last six or seven years, science that says that methane uh, was, you know, the, the first judgments about this were, were, were made in um, in an artificial atmosphere, uh, uh, in a desiccant effectively, in isolation, each gas in isolation. And moreover, um, uh, the, the people that have have highlighted that case have had very little media attention uh and yet they're saying that there is no way um that the effect warming effect of methane or nitrous oxide justifies any attempt ever to tax it now that means methane from any source pipeline leakages or or anything not just ruminant animals so why do you think it is I mean, we hear this nonsense about trade, and, and as Jasper's just talked about, why do you think it is that federated farmers, dairy and Zed, beef and lamb, and others continually throw us under the bus? I mean, we employ these people for goodness sake. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, you mentioned before my involvement in trade talks way back. What mm. was really interesting in those days, and I'll never forget being in Brussels uh, at the height of the um, what was then the GATT round, basically become the World Trade Organization. And, you know, the one thing that stood out almost above absolutely everything else was New Zealand's ability to punch above its weight. Our trade people were committed to the New Zealand cause. They were there representing New Zealand. They weren't representing some pressure group. They didn't belong to Twigs and Feathers or Greenpeace or whatever as a, on a side issue they were focused on New Zealand's interests and and they represented that interest uh cleverly uh and and ably and influentially and that's what's missing we are sending the wrong people to these IPCC jamborees you know they go off to uh Makarish, they go off to um, all these fancy places around the world and park their private jets on the runway and then they go in and sell us down the creek. And that really annoys me. We need a government and we need representatives who stand up for us and point out that methane is a totally different gas to CO2. It's an apples and orange situation. And the politi politicians should never have interfered and uh, made scientists come up with some sort of a uh, comparison between methane and CO2. The only thing they've got in common is that they're greenhouse gases or gases in the atmosphere, and that has led to a huge amount of trouble. They came up with GWP, uh, you know, global warming potential of 100. That was a nonsense. Um, uh, Allen and Payne and co, the Oxford University, came out and said, no, that was wrong. We, we've got to treat... Um, methane, particularly ruminant methane, differently. It's a short-lived gas. It doesn't last in the atmosphere. Most of that uh, stuff about how long gases last is just a nonsense as well and been proven. But it wasn't until a couple of years ago that Will Happer, Dr. Will Happer, who's one of the most respected physicists in the world, uh, a standing, high standing, he'd be recognised as one of the two or three top physicists ever. Uh, and, and a Canadian scientist by the name of William Van Vingarten got together and started looking at the effect of 
of uh, greenhouse gases in the real atmosphere, not in the laboratory, not in dry air, because there's no such thing as dry air. There's humidity and moisture in the air wherever we go, e even in the even in the dry Arctic or the Sahara. So they, they actually studied it. And, and what they found was that when you look at the way um, greenhouse gases operate on the electromagnetic spectrum, and that's a big lot of words, but I'll try and give you another analogy. Um, when you look at it, then their effectiveness is vastly reduced. Let me give you an illustration. Um, your radio station operates on a wavelength. If I twiddle the knobs a little bit, I lose your radio station. It's not because the sound's gone away. It's just that I'm not on the correct frequency. If you take liken that to the um, frequencies that exist in the atmosphere, then methane only operates on one or two very small stations and very weakly. Water vapour, which is 8, 10,000, 15,000 times stronger than methane and more prevalent than methane, it operates on 100 or more different stations. You can get water vapour on any part of the wavelength, whereas methane, you only get two weak signals. And and when Van Garten and Happer found that, they were able to show that instead of methane being a, a, a strong molecule and a potent molecule that affects things, they found, hey, it doesn't have very much effect at all. In fact, the warming that methane can do is minuscule. They said it's so trivial, you shouldn't be taxing anybody, you shouldn't be taking it into consideration. Now, does that make me a climate denier or make them climate deniers? No, it's not. They showed that CO2 can do a very small amount of warming. They even said methane can do a small amount of warming. It's about 0.001 of one degree every 100 years. So it's, it's, it's so tiny, it's immeasurable. And as for coming onto my farm and measuring my methane and telling me <laughs> I pay tax on it, that is so absurd. And uh, people actually think that that's possible and believable and, and genuine. They need to think again. And we, we've spoken about the science many a times and not just us, you know, so many different forums. But there is also this whole gravy train behind it, Owen. $120 million were announced during uh, last year, I think late last year, for solutions to reduce, to reduce emissions from organic waste. And they said that we need to tackle methane, and they call it climate-damaging, biogenic methane emissions from decomposing organic waste. 52 councils have been put together in an alliance. There is the sky commitment, where again, it is countdown, Fonterra, Silver Ferns, Foodstuff, Nestle, and all of this that have signed up to it. There is the Love Food, Hate Waste Collective. So it's it's not just going to be for farmers. It is going to be for urban New Zealand. Councils are going to have to up their rates, put in a whole lot of other measures Whereas most councils at this point are so close to bankruptcy that, you know, oh, between you, their cycle right. lanes and three waters yeah. assets being taken off them and yeah. all of that climate nonsense. So this, the methane issue, listeners, is, is not just rural New Zealand. It is coming for you regardless of where you are. The gravy train always does. That frightens me perhaps more than anything. I mean, once money starts getting just out and dollops like that, people are not going to... Um, 
be quite so uh, regarding of their principles. Mm, and, exactly. um, you know, they, <laughs> they, they say follow the science, they say follow the money. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, if you look at what the IPCC has said over the years about future temperature increases and, and the trend, and you might recall they came out with uh, a traje trajectory that said, they called it RCP 8.5. They said we could go up four or five or six degrees in the mm. next 100 years. Now, more latterly, they've realised that was a nonsense and they've backed away from that. But every regional council in New Zealand, the Ministry for the Environment, the Commissioner for the Environment, the Climate Change Commissioner, all running with RCP 8.5, despite the fact that it's been clearly shown that that's no longer a possible or practical option. Now, why yeah. is that? Why is that? Why do they continue to follow that? Why, do, why does the... Why does the Ministry for the Environment, why do we, even our own farming leaders, why do the political parties on the hustings you hear every day, why are they still running with this New Zealand farming is 50% of our problem? It's a lie. It's a lie. You can't call it anything else. It's not just a, a misjudgment. It's an outright lie. And it's time we called them out on it. And that's really why the Methane Science Accord was formed. It was to say to politicians, get hold of the truth. Get hold of the facts. Look at the actual science, not the stuff that's clouded by the green groups and, and by the people who have got um, at stake a lot of money because they want to dig into the public purse uh, at, for even greater amounts of research funding. Incredible, isn't it? I mean, I I recall um, the formation of the global uh, re green yeah the global research alliance, and there was the pastoral greenhouse gas consortium before that, and the money that's gone into all of that. I mean, no one um, denies that we as farmer farmers we like to uh, find technologies and and ideas that make us more efficient. As as uh, in your time, you went and told the government we want to get rid of subsidies, production subsidies, and we'll be more efficient. So we, we did all that. We've got the international gold standard of production, subsidy-free farming. Um, and they still put us under the bus for emissions taxes. Now, it was staggering. Jaspreet was in the room last year when we had a meeting in Invercargill and about 550 people at it. And it seems I humiliated the ACT candidate, Andrew Hoggard, uh, who was the former Feds president, when I said, this is world first stupidity that you're endorsing a tax on farmers, on your own members. You're endorsing a tax. It's the it's a first. It's world first. No sector has ever said tax us and we'll be happy. Um, but he came up with this idea that he just wants this bogeyman off his back, uh, get the green piece out of his hair so he can tell his kids he fixed something. A small tax would be okay. Well, I've never heard anything so appalling from a farm leader in my life. Now, I don't mean to be nasty to, to Andrew because you know, I hope I wish him all the best. But what is it going to take to wake up? Uh, you know, you know, you're doing the Methane Science Accord. You're, you're after up to 500,000 names to really... Is, is that what you think it's going to take to move the dial so that the politicians in these other... in the parties are going to wake up? Because it seems there's not one political party today willing to tackle this the way we need it done what i know that was a long yeah. statement um mm. quite frustrating you can sense and, and you know i had another colleague he said 
uh, when I was trying to develop that idea of gas uh, gas trickery. It was the guilty animal scam. Gas stood for guilty animal scam. And I think he's right. I think he's right. We've had this gas trickery put on us for 20 years, and it's in the mindsets of set of par- parliament and politicians and bureaucracy and mainstream New Zealanders. It is going to take at least 500,000 names to get the to get things turned, isn't it, Owen? Yeah, it is. And uh, really, at the end of the day, you have to try and hold on to your faith in democracy, that somehow the people speak and somehow the politicians, um, you know, respond. Um, and if, if we've lost our faith in that, uh, there's really no hope for us. So we're saying we'll put the names together, we'll put uh, the issue in front of the politicians. I mean, I got a little bit of hope when I heard that one of our leading parties were going to follow the science, um, and then they went and blew it all by talking about all these technologies and things that they were going to introduce. You know, Don, my father was a Jersey breeder. Uh, we're going back a few years, but he loved his Jersey cows, and it was in the days when you got well paid for milk from Jersey cows, by the way. But he was a breeder of cows, and he, he he set out to, you know, have the perfect cow, and he just didn't want a cow that produced a lot of um, milk and, and milk fat, but he, and butterfat as it was in those days, but he also wanted a cow that looked good, had good udder attachment, strong feet, had a nice sort of wedge-shaped body. And what he found was that you often trade one trait for another. You know, you breed a cow that's got good udder attachments and her feet are not so good or vice versa. Now, we've got a whole lot of smart people out there telling us, particularly with sheep and and, and LIC are onto the same thing at the moment with dairy cows. Oh, we can breed animals that have got, you know, low methane output. Well, at what cost? That's my question. What cost? You know, we've, I hear that some of these methane animals are, have, have dropped their... Uh, some of their other traits by 20 and 30%. And all for what? All for what? It's not going to make one measurable scrap of difference, even in 100 years of measuring temperature. It's a, it's a fallacy. It's a fool's errand. And, and what we need is strong people to stand up. Look, New Zealand is a bit of a blip on the edge of the world globe, but we have standing. And, and I'm a great believer that truth uh, eventually rises to the surface. We've got people, well, we need people who will stand up, clearly enunciate the situation, follow the science exactly, the latest current science that's unrefuted, and stand up not just locally but internationally. That's, that's the part that really riles me. We've got people going out and into the international world and selling it short, and we've got to stop that. There is, they, I think there's almost a race right now to develop these low methane sheep and cows and whatever else they want to. I, and because I think there's, there will come a time when they'll have to relook at these metrics that are being used. But right now, there's been a proactive release on the 4th of September from the Parliament's uh, Environment, Energy and Climate Committee. On the 4th of September, James Shaw uh, and others have worked on this. And one of their uh, the clauses of this particular uh, 
paper says that while developing all these recommendations where they say we need to be at the forefront of everything from reducing fossil from ending fossil fuels not reducing to cutting down methane and co2 emissions they say we have considered the latest science in the current uh, recommendations metrics are not slated for discussion within the un climate change process until 2027 So as you just said we are working right now and I have spoken about this at different forums including council the ministry for environment guidance on basis of which councils are making their own you know emission uh, uh, how much emission they are currently their tables they are from 2008 they are talking of IPCC fourth report and if it will be till 2027 that we are not looking at anything it will be the science will be outdated by two decades but i we got only we come lately coming out of the woodwork haven't we you know oh gosh well, let's do the science oh let's follow the science where were they in 2016 when miles allen and uh, michelle kane and co said gwp 100 was a nonsense new zealand should have been all over that in a, like a rash back then not now not not arriving you know the party as late as this and you know i'm I, i just find it almost insulting that beef and lamb and dairy and said and now saying oh gee um you know we're going to we're going to look at the science well where were they when when, when was first set up where were they then looking at the science where was where was new zealand inc when um kane and and uh, allen and first started talking about gw star where were they then where were our leadership back then Were they following the science? No, they were sucked in by the green groups for all this nonsense and ridiculous stuff about methane being more powerful, more potent, and and whatever. Um, you know, it just really annoys me that we've fallen into this deep hole and we're having to dig our way out of it. Oh, playing nice um, has been part of the game for a long time, and, and even currently, I'm aware that that our groups that we used to be formal, you know, part of in, in the past. Are sort of saying, oh, we've just got to play in the mainstream. Uh, we can't, we can't play on the fringes. We can't. So, what does that mean? Um, sell out. It seems to be saying sell out. Now, interestingly, clause seventy-two in the letter that Jasper just wrote out at the end of it, we talk about metric um, are not slated for discussion until twenty twenty-seven. The last sentence Jasper didn't read out. She said it says, as such, guidance on metrics in this mandate is premature. Premature. It's twenty years overdue, uh, so I don't know what premature means to these guys. Probably another billion dollars worth of of gravy train, um, I think. Uh, so it is so disappointing, and Owen, I'm I'm really heartened to hear that you've got the bit between the teeth. Now let's, but let's go on to that review that beef and lamb, dairy and zed and feds are doing. It seems like a review of their own, um, their own work to me. It, it sort of says to me that. Uh, the work that they're going to do, you know, they're going to review the Miles Allen and the Kane um, stuff again, and that's what they've already paid for. But they're doing a review, and it sounds like they've sat on this review for some time. Politicians and self-justification go together, don't they? Um, <laughs> you know, kind of inseparable. Um, and what we're seeing now is a, sort of a, a, a very late. To the party kind of effort to somehow uh, swing the thing around. 
I'd, I'd like to think that, that, you know, between Groundswell and Farm and Fifty Shades of Green and the Rural Advocacy Network, that we might have actually um, pushed them a little bit on that because, you know, it's, they're now sort of trying to um, trying to kind of catch up. Um, it, it's all too little too late. And, and what's missing very obviously, the, sticking out like a, the nose on your face, is the fact that their science is only catching up with what happened in 2016, 2018. What yeah. about what's happened in 2022 and 23 with the Vingarten and Happer paper? And it's not just it's not just that. We we've got we've got our own Dr. Jock Allison, one of our leading animal scientists in New Zealand, uh, a guy who dedicated his life to improving the the particularly the animal side of farming in New Zealand over his entire lifetime. His paper with Dr. Tom Sheehan on the whole issue of greenhouse gases is still one of the most readable, sensible, easy to follow, down to earth papers on the issue that has ever been written. It's an absolute primer on on the whole issue of not just methane but CO two as well. And and there's a bunch of other scientists um, who are not getting publicity, of course, because um, the media don't want to give them any publicity, but are out there saying exactly the same thing. Catch up, guys. When you look at methane in the real world, in a world dominated by water vapour, then what you find is that its its contribution to warming is so minimal, is so infinitesimal, that it makes no difference at all. And trying to tax it is just a nonsense from woe to go. I should say here that I have been I have gotten used to the lies on the climate front between methane and CO2 and all of this. But what really got me angry is this this groundbreaking research that beef and lamb, dairy NZ and feds have said is is going to be our savior. The ones we've just referred to, the Miles Allen one. We have picked up two people, both who have one of them, yeah, you know, Miles Allen, who's already been part of IPCC, the other person who is uh, working on this one. She is a co-chair for the United Nations Food and Agriculture uh, Administration's Technical Advisory Group on Methane. Michelle Ken, do you think, as you said, our turkey is going to look forward to Christmas? No, they are not. But this is just, you know, a bit thrown to the plebs to stop them from mutinying that, you know, look, look, we are doing something. I think yes. this is probably the biggest insult to the intelligence of farmers and these bodies, some of which are levy paid and some like feds, independent advocates, they are just leading us again down the garden path. Why now? Why mm. just before the elections? Mm -hmm. It is, yeah, I, I am very cynical cruel, about this it? one. It's cruel because, you know, I don't know why the, our farming leadership got conned into the idea that if you don't do something, we'll put you in the ETS. Um, you know, uh, that was so badly thought through and such a, a poor, low-key response to a threat that should never have been made anyway. But, you know, to then buckle it down and, and, and try and cobble together something um, in the narrow confines that they were to work um, was never going to work, was never going to come out as, as a sensible option, a workable, tra practicable option. What they should have said was, we will look at the science 
because policy is based on science and facts and reality. I mean, goodness gracious, that's what the National Party is learning at the moment over their tax policy. You, you make policy on the basis of factual evidence. Uh, of, and factual evidence comes from science, and science evolved. What was, what was scientifically understood 100 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, even one year ago, will change as new findings and, 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 uh, are made and, and people develop uh, new thinking. And what happens, that science stands until somebody refutes it, challenges it, and finds it wrong. What we have right now and what Beef and Lamb, Dairy and Z and Federated Farmers should be focusing on is the current science. The current science says that methane is not an issue and that ruminant methane in New Zealand should be disregarded for tax purposes. And we want to hear politicians say, I have read the science, I understand what they're saying, there will no be no policies put forward by our party to tax methane, to place all these stupid and ridiculous targets and farm measurements and all that stuff and, and, and all these ideas of breeding animals that are going to be methane pure, for goodness sake, get off the bus and, and get a dose of reality and, and, um, and just move on and, and have, have the, um, the, the, I was going to use a uh, word that probably I shouldn't, but have the fortitude, I'll call it fortitude, <laughs> to get up in the international arena and back for New Zealand. I mean, goodness yeah. gracious, you wouldn't find an Aussie out there cow-towing um, at the expense of his country. The, the Chinese go to these uh, conferences knowing full well that there's a, a new coal-fired power station being built every 10 minutes. And they don't, mm. they don't kowtow to the international community. Why should New Zealand? And why should we let these um, green-tinged uh, politicians and, and leaders go off to IPCC meetings and sell us down the creek? Oh, and they do it with a smile as well. Look, I, you, know, you and I have been in these forums in Wellington. You, you work with bureaucrats more than I did, perhaps. But uh, I recall meetings in Wellington where um, they were, uh, especially the guys that are now sort of got links to Victoria University, um, seemed to almost smile with glee that they had me um, angry. Um, uh, and they thought that they were pulling the wool over the farmer's eyes and they were smiling about it. I mean, I, I kid you not, they were smiling that they were putting farmers under the bus. And so they're still there, these people. They're still there. And uh, if the if the listeners... Um, can't understand this call to arms because uh, uh, they need to. I, I should say they need to understand this call to arms effectively by um, the uh, Methane Science Accord because it is going to affect all New Zealanders, uh, as Jasper said, through the local authorities who are now hamming it up to do all this methane mitigation stuff. Um, I don't know what it's going to take. If we can't get people to understand this, uh, we're up against bureaucracy, we're up against big money, we're up against the pledges that New Zealand has made to the methane, likes of the Global Methane Pledge. I mean, this is a massive United Nations. I know that you may not agree with this, but it's a massive pull by the United Nations forces to get us to comply with the, that agenda. Now, we couldn't have talked about this 10 years ago because we were being considered nutters. 
Uh, it's very, very obvious, the game. Um, and, you know, uh, we've got to get as many people, and I applaud you, Owen, for having the tenacity. Age is no barrier. You talked about age a bit earlier. Age is no barrier to wiseness. <laughs> it makes you... Uh, if Biden you... can do it, I can. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Gosh. But no uh, one told us, Don, you know, when they signed up the Methane Pledge, made us one of the first 130 countries in the world to sign up to this Methane Pledge as a part of COP26, the last day of Glasgow. They didn't tell us what the heck this was going to sign us, you know, what actually this meant. That 130-odd are now 149 countries. And this is where we are at. If we don't push back at this point, yeah, that uh, is that is yeah. a massive I mean, just, tax grab. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've fought against this conspiratorial stuff. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, people were telling me a few years ago, oh, you know, you need to understand what's going on behind all of this. And I said, oh, get off the grass. I'm not going to buy into that nonsense. You know, um, you know, reds under the bed and whatever. Um, but I've got to say, you know, the more you, the closer you get to this stuff, the more you realise there's kind of connections. I mean, I, I listened to some old guy called John Campbell on, on YouTube talking about, um, uh, COVID and stuff. And, you know, he's hammering away uh, about, you know, these, uh, super extra deaths that are occurring in the community. And you start to think after a while, why isn't anybody asking a question? Why aren't ministers of health and prime ministers asking about this? And, and you know, you can start to believe that these dots actually join up. They join up behind the scenes. And, um, yeah, I must say I've had to rethink that um, somewhat. And, and what here's what I see, Don, and I think you'll understand this. I can remember a director general of agriculture like, like Malcolm Cameron solid agricultural men, absolutely steeped in every aspect of agriculture, who went into the cabinet room, uh, went in front of the minister and battered for agriculture. When uh, Helen Clark was prime minister, she cleaned out a lot of the, um, the, the genuine departmental people, not just in agriculture, but in other ministries, and, and bean counters and party people were put into key positions and, and you know Malcolm Cameron would no longer would not have joined up with any pressure group you know he he resigned before he did anything like that but what we find now in senior roles in government departments of people who belong to uh, a number of different pressure groups behind the scenes and are feeding them information um, and, and talking behind our backs and whatever that's that's deplorable we need a public service that is honest, transparent, full of integrity, acting on our behalf. And if an incoming government doesn't do anything else, it needs to clean that scene out really seriously. 100%, Owen. And, you know, the value proposition from our public service uh, in general is very, very poor at the moment. It has been so wasteful. Uh, interestingly, I was behind the um, the naming of the Ministry for Primary Industry. I thought a super a ministry for something would be good, not of uh, something. So, and I thought the super ministry would be a good thing. But what I've seen in the last fifteen odd years is, uh, if you sort of 
get to a point where you're under pressure by a sector, you just move. Uh, it's like a revolving door. You just go to the next department over. So, so you might go to MB or something like that. Um, but you've still got the same agenda as the bureaucrat that's advising the parliament. And uh, until we, I think you're, you've made a hell of a big statement. Um, we've got to have a, a, a public sector uh, that is um, got some integrity. And currently, it appears integrity is lost. Uh, you know, I'm going to make a funny comment here that will raise an eyebrow. When Jacinda Ardern became the Prime Minister, I thought that she offered New Zealand something that we hadn't had for some time, and that was a lofty vision. The problem with lofty visions is you have to deliver on them. <laughs> you can't set a high standard. You can't put pegs in the sand that are well out there if you don't a, have the ability or the inclination uh, or the support to actually achieve them. What New Zealand needs, needs right now more than anything is not somebody who argues about fine points of tax policy or whether we have jails or not. What we want is somebody who lifts our game, lifts our game as a country, lifts our sights um, and, and sets you know, new goals for New Zealand that are achievable, but then turns around and delivers on them. Mm. We've lacked delivery. We know where we need to be as a country, and even on this methane issue, I think there are a lot of people who understand uh, at least something of the science on methane, but they're not delivering on it. I, I yeah. think they're actually scientists in and around Climate Change Commission, Ministry for the Environment, etc., who have read the HAP of the Garden papers, who've read Tom Sheehan, who've read uh, Jock Allison, who, who've read a number of other scientists who are clear on this. But, you know, they just start to look at which side of the bread the butter's on and um, and, and back away. And, and it's going to take, it's going to take, as I said, people not just with vision, but with determination and ability to deliver on that vision. We want to we, we need to lift our game. We're, you know, um, I was reading the other day that Israel, which is smaller than the Waikato region, get that? Smaller than Waikato, is producing 11 times the GDP of New Zealand. You know, yep. we've got to do better, and we can do it with agriculture. I hear people saying, oh, agriculture is yesterday's industry. We've got to go regen, and oh, man, don't start me on that. But you know, agriculture can do it. We've got the ability to do um, not just added value, but but really exciting technological breakthroughs around agriculture that could reposition New Zealand uh, as a as a smart leader. And and here we are wallowing around in in arguments about a methane gas that's point zero 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 one eight percent of the atmosphere. Uh, and 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 you know we're we're missing out on the big picture stuff, on growing our economy, on growing our exports, on you know producing more wealth for New Zealanders. I mean, get a life, people. We've got to get on with the job. We do, we do. And you know, seeing the IMF figures that came out uh, late last month, saying that we are 159th out of 160 countries in terms of the GDP forecast for the next 12 months. That's that's a really grim picture now listeners we've been talking about this methane accord i should at this point put in a plug-in for the website if you want to go 
and sign up to uh, reality on the methane, this case for the current science, the website is www.methane-accord.co.nz. This is supported by Farm, that's Facts About Rumen and Methane, Groundswell, Fifty Shades of Green, and the Rural Advocacy Network. We do need Urban New Zealand joining in because, as I said, this is not just about rural New Zealand methane. They have a plan for urban New Zealand as well, don't they, Don? Oh, they do. And, uh, you know, we're, we're doing our best to, you know, since we started the show, though, think about it, Jasper, five months or six months on, there's not many weeks we haven't been bashing um, the table about this very issue, Owen. And so we're very grateful that we can, uh, if we can help you and your group um, generate some more interest. Um, and... I don't know what to do next. Uh, just keep in touch, I think, Owen, and um, we'll uh, try and try and give you as much help as we can and, and your group because you've got some love, you know, fine people in there. I see Jane Smith, uh, Hamish Delatour, Derek Daniel, Hamish Carswell, Helen Mandano, who we had on our show a while back, uh, John Sexton, Neil Henderson, Hamish Bolesky, Deborah Alexander, Kate Broadbent, and yourself as initiate as the initiators. So. Look, you've done a good job getting it together in, what, four weeks, perhaps? Uh, perhaps mm. it's longer than that. Um, but all power to your arm, and uh, we'll keep in touch and um, see how the numbers are going. But, yeah, employ our listeners to just sign up on that website that uh, Jasper has just mentioned. And so, Owen, thanks for coming on today, and uh, uh, all the best. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity. And all I'd say is not, don't just join up yourself. You know, get the family to join up, get friends, send it into your network. It's numbers that will change this, and numbers only. So, yeah, thanks, uh, guys, um, and thanks for the work you're doing. Gosh, um, you're a breath of fresh air in, in, a, in a pretty torrid scene out there in the media. I can't believe that our media have deteriorated to the degree they have. So keep flying the flag. Thank you so much, Owen. We completely intend to. Once again, it's www.methane-accord.co.nz. Thank you so much for joining us today. Goodbye. Thank you. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwash. This is Jeff Freeth with my co-host Don Nicholson. And... Our attempt over the last few months for Don and me has been to expose how farmers across the world, regardless of where we are, seem to be facing a very similar state of red tape, a very similar push, pressure, turmoil. And today, to further get into the nitty gritties of how farming is being hammered, for lack of a better term, we have with us Jackie Flannery from Ireland. We'll make the introductions in a moment, but a bit of background here. Jackie is the spokesperson and admin for the Irish Rural Association. That's a lobby group, completely voluntary and completely independent. 
that was founded in February 2021. So here from County Galloway. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very, very much and delighted to be here uh, speaking to you on, on uh, your radio station. Um, it's it's very, very interesting to see how technology has improved over the years that we can actually be speaking from County Galway today to yourselves in New Zealand. Uh, so looking forward to a good chat. Well, isn't, that, isn't that a plus? Uh, the technology is a major uh, reason why I think the farmers of the world are going to be more connected and understand each other's problems that this is part of the conduit for because in the past uh, it's all been done through print media uh, letter writing and we clearly were always behind the eight ball now it's in real time we can sense what you're up against and you can sense what we're up against and yeah let's explore that a little further but a little bit of background you told us pre-interview was um you didn't come from uh, well, farmer's daughter, but you didn't do farming for a fair chunk of your life. I'm a farmer's daughter originally, and I suppose like a lot of, of, of people in rural Ireland, I went to college. I studied as a graphic designer and a printer. I had a business for 26 years, and I suppose the insurance industry sent me home because of the costs. Um, I'd always be home at the weekend and I would have done work with my dad and my mom and my uncle and it was it was cattle, it was sheep, it was mixed farming, it was doing the vegetables, it was baling the hay, it was all of that sort of stuff. So the background is very solid, the background is there and the passion is there that I'm now back doing what I love the most. I have peace, I have harmony, I can walk out and I'm in nature and that's very, very important for peace of mind for me anyhow. Yeah, well, that's great. Just explain for, for our listeners where County Galway is. And, <clears throat> you know, clearly it's not a Northern Ireland, is it? Uh, it's in Ireland. County, County Galway is, is one of our counties on the west coast of Ireland. It would be sort of in the range of 336 hectares size-wise. It is a beautiful, very scenic. I'm sure your listeners would have often heard that are, that will be visiting would have often heard about Connemara. Um, we have our stone walls, we have our hedges, we have our green land, we have our diversity of animals, our water courses, our lakes. It's a beautiful part of the country. Indeed, Ireland as a whole is a beautiful part of the country. But we have a particular passion and, and love for the west of Ireland and our, yeah. our heritage and our Cayley music and our food and all of that. And just as an aside, because I've got a bad vice, it's called racehorses. Is there any horse racing in County Galway? Uh, you have the, the Galway races that's held in Ballybrit every year. And you have quite a lot of um, show jumping. We, we have a good breeding regime and good equine system in Ireland through our show jumpers, our Irish draft, and particularly as well our, our Connemara ponies, which are, are all bred. A lot of breeding goes abroad. Um, I think a lot goes to actually in Australia and goes to Europe. So, so yeah, the horses, the horses are very important in Ireland as well, both from a, a racing perspective and a show jumping and breeding perspective. And the the reason I asked that, and I did know that, um, because some of the names you've just mentioned, like Bally Brit and Connemara and things like that, have horse. They're the names of horses that have raced in New Zealand. So, look, there's a bit of history, uh, listeners. Uh, I know something that others might not in terms of horses. But hey. Um, so so the size of the farms in your region, I, I detect, just again, talking to you pre this interview, um, they're quite small, but 
but that's uh, under threat as i understand it you know the 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 game in town seems to be to sque- put the squeeze on you with a whole lot of rules and regulations and maybe there will be uh bigger players come to town and take you out is that it is that how you see it I, I suppose, Don, you know, they, they we're all talking about family farms and, you know, the definition of a family farm and the size of a family farm. To us in the west of Ireland and indeed all of the West Coast, which would be would be the smaller uh, uh, farm sizes, you could be talking from something from 60 up to 120 up to 180. It depends really on, on the type of land that you have. It, it does vary. But um for example, and I will explain it very simply, we have County Galway, as I said to you, has circa in around 336 hectares, 3,000, 3, what did I say, 336,000 hectares, whereas County Cork, uh, which would be classed as the Golden Vale area of, of the south, uh, is circa 530,000 hectares. So those would be, that county would be mainly dairy, mainly tillage. So the scenario there is the comparison is very, very different. Now, in relation to the rules and regulations, yes, there there is a severity of what is happening in relation to the rules and regulations that's coming on relation to the climate agenda, which we believe are very, very strong and very, very stringent towards uh, the Irish farming system, and in particular, the small farmer, the suckler farmer, the mixed farmer, we say sheep and cattle, um, we believe that we are being heavily, heavily penalised. Now, I suppose for your listeners, what well, we've got to be very clear about, Irish farmers have no problem in meeting certain uh, climate agendas, but we feel that we are overpowered uh, in meeting climate. And at the end of the day, Irish farmers, we are the protectors of nature, just like you guys are in New Zealand, in, in, in any other part of the world. We know our land. We, I mean, I could not go out to New Zealand or to Australia and say, yeah, I can identify with that or, or whatever. We are the protectors of our land. And we actually face a situation in Ireland where our land may be taken off us. And we believe that honestly. And to try and inform farmers and people of rural Ireland who may not be user-friendly towards uh, social media, they may not have a situation where they have a Wi-Fi or a broadband service in their area because they are in a rural position. And I suppose we see that, and, and we might come back to later on in the whole digitalization and, and the cashless society proposals that's coming up from, from the, the big boys in uh, abroad. But that's really where we're at. It's to protect where we're at, to look after our animals, to be able to do it in a sustainable way, but not to be doing it in, in a bullyish way. And that's what's actually happening to Ireland. And to actually hold on to what we actually have. Jackie, could you let us know about what other farming organizations are there, lobby, lobby organizations? Because you guys, your organization, the Irish Rural Association, was formed in 2021. Why did why a need for that? Were there not lobby organizations doing their job there? Okay, I suppose we can we can develop that a little bit more. In 2019, there was um there was a beef protest here in Ireland because we believed that farmers got together and they they started protests outside the beef factories. 
because we were not getting uh, value prices for our stock. We were not getting what's called the fifth quarter, which is basically all the, the other bits of the animal, which is not used. Farmers were getting paid for that. There was a lot of regulations in, in relation to ages and all of that sort of stuff. So we still, and, and I mean, at that point, <coughs> excuse me, at that point, farmers really did get together and farmers were united. Mm. Yeah, for the first time in a long, long time, and the belief that uh, that that organisation that that was set up at that point was actually going to do something and make something and and move things forward and actually rock the boat, and it actually did rock the boat, and farmers got behind it. But one thing or another, it just didn't work out, and you know, a lot of a lot of fractions and a lot of breakups and a lot of everything sort of came from that. Uh, for us ourselves. For me personally, well, I've been involved in volunteer work in uh, over 40 years in, in a youth section and youth service. And I suppose I would have gained experience there in relation to policy procedure and in relation to PR marketing and all of that sort of stuff. So a few of us got together and we decided, look, there is a certain area here where we're not being represented and where the smaller people, uh, and I mean, I don't mean that in an insulting fashion, but I mean this the, the grassroots, the small people, with small areas, smaller cities, smaller towns, smaller villages, rural Ireland. We're not hearing the message, we're not getting the information, and we're not getting the factual information, which is more important. And these people would might listen to the national station and hear, oh, well, the Minister for Environment is coming out today and is saying there's only going to be one car per village or 30 cars per village and that you're going to have the car share and all of this sort of stuff. So from that, we, we actually sat down and decided, look, we need to do something. We need to prove to the people and we need to get people back involved, get back in, interested, get the trust of farmers, get the trust of people in rural Ireland. And our work not only covers the whole farming side of things, but we cover rural issues. We've covered the tarp cutting, which is a very, very big issue. We deal with road infrastructures. We deal with with water issues. We deal with a, quite a lot of stuff. Um, you know, um, farm abuse, the whole suicide agenda. There's an awful lot of stuff. So we felt the need was there for that. And that is why we said we're setting up as a voluntary nonprofit organization. We are not aligned to any political parties. We are not aligned to any farming organizations. But to answer your question, Don, into as to what is there. So we have the main organization, which is called the Irish Farming Farm Association. And there is 72K uh, membership there in, in, in that organization. Uh, we have the ICMSA, which is the Irish Cream and, and Milk. They basically deal with da the dairy sector. We have the ICMSA, which is a smaller uh, farm organization. They would deal with a lot of the, the the sucklers, the sheep, the smaller the smaller side of things in relation to again. We would we would sort of align. I won't say align, but we would sort of identify the same issues that they would be dealing with. And then you have the hill farmers, which would be dealing with the likes of. Um, the, the mountains, the grazing in the mountains, the, the breeds of sheep that are in the mountain areas and and that sort of stuff. And then you have Mokrana Firma, which is basically a, an organization that deals with the young farmers. And Mokrana Firma would be sort of aligned in, in the sense of, of, of um, working and in conjunction with the, the IFA. But the main farming organizations, and I will be critical of them to a certain degree because I am at the moment on behalf of Irish Rural Association, is 
It's too little too late in what they're actually doing here in Ireland this week, whereby the the, the whole derogation um, debate that is going on, is it's only now that they are out and protesting. And the amount of people that turned up at the Department of Agriculture during the week, uh, in comparison to their 72k membership, they should be able to absolutely close down Dublin. But the feeling is, in Ireland, farmers have lost... Uh, They've lost the belief in the Irish Farming Association. And they believe that they're not speaking on their behalf anymore. The IFA have everything that is needed to be a very, very strong and vocal organization. They have the research, they have the government's ear, but it's not happening. And there's a certain amount of stuff happening. That's fine. But the feelings of the ordinary farmer on the ground is not getting through. And, and that is the big problem. And I suppose that is where we're keeping the, the pressure on the likes of these organisations and getting into doll airing and getting the, the parliamentary questions asked and getting into doll airing and getting to what's called the Joint Committee for Agriculture and getting in, in stuff and questions there, which is what we're doing. And mm. for a young voluntary group um, to actually have that done within a year and a half it's very, very important. And it tells us that we're actually doing something and we're doing it right. And we're basically driven by social media uh, from a point of view of people that can get us on, on our Facebook account, can get us on WhatsApps and can, can meet and greet us as we trip around the country. <clears throat> and that's what we do. Several people may contact us with that. But the whole farm organization in Ireland, we believe uh, we have called for unity. For example, let's just take the, the climate agenda. Last February, we, we had a meeting with um, the Rural Independent Group in, in Dáil Éireann, which is a group of independent TDs. Now, there's three groupings in the Dáil, but we met, we met this one on the day. And we brought our, our package and our concerns to them. And these people drive the agenda of, of, of our concerns as well as what they're getting from their, their own constituencies. <clears throat> and we also have an independent TD called Michael Fitzmaurice. He's based in Galway, Roscommon constituency. And I would suggest that you actually Google uh, Deputy Michael Fitzmaurice because he is a man that, that has been able to really be a driving force in Dáil Éireann for rural Ireland and for the farming community. And this is what we need more of within Dáil Éireann is more rural TDs. <clears throat> Excuse me. We need more rural TDs to actually drive our cause. And this is what's happening at the moment in, in the sense of they're trying to, to, to launch and set up a new farmers party. They're trying to set up and, and organize more rural TDs happening in, in different strands. So, so there's a lot of um, groundwork going on at the moment in relation to all of that. And that is what's needed because these rural TDs do need to be rural and they do need to be, as I would call them, real real TDs uh, in the sense of not party aligned. Because we see some of them that may be party aligned, when it comes to a government vote, they will vote with the government. Yeah. And that's the biggest that's the biggest problem, guys, we actually see when it comes to comes to our, our TDs in and public representatives in Ireland, is that I could go to a TD's clinic on a Friday morning and I could say, uh, TD such and such, I have an issue in relation to a scheme or I have an issue in relation to rewetting or an issue in relation to a climate agenda. 
And that TD will say to me, I'll leave it with me now, Jackie, and we'll we'll try and sort that for you and we'll do A, B or C. But this TD will go back up to Dublin. And if there's a piece of legislation being brought forward, which we have seen recently in relation to the whole rewetting agenda, um, that TD will vote with government. So in essence, the question we have to ask is, is that rural TD, that rural party TD, is that rural TD representing me as a member of their constituent? When they go back up to Dublin and vote with the party whip. And this is one of the big issues that we have in Ireland. Coming right. from coming from the farming organisations, so we have the farming organisations there, a lot to do and a lot more to be done. But what we also are seeing in the last number of years, and I think it was, you hit me with a question as well, is, I don't know if you have them in, in New Zealand, but it's, it's NGOs, non-government organisations, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have lots of public-private partnerships out here, everything, and they seem to just completely take over what should be an elected member's role. But, Jackie, you've used this word rewetting. And for Kiwi listeners, would you expand on it? Because I know you've used rewetting many times, and each time you've spoken about it, you've said that this is how they'll drive us off our land. So could you explain rewetting? I, I will, with, with your permission, go back a little step further and go back to February 2022 when, when we actually started. When mm. the Minister for Environment uh, came out and came up with the idea that he was going to try and stop the people of Ireland from cutting their, their turf on their box. Now, that is something that has happened in Ireland since Adam was a boy. And it's a means and it's, it's, a, it's a financially viable means to heat our homes to burn in our ranges, to burn in our open fires. But yet this minister has decided that, uh, oh, it's a public health issue, it's a climate issue, people are dying from from burning turf. And, of course, this is coming from an EPA report. And what the minister has neglected to say is basically that the EPA were talking about um, what was going on in the the city of Dublin. (coughs) So... Sorry. So going back to the minister and the EPA, is there they are pushing this thing that now only people that own bogs can actually cut their turf. It's called turbary rights. But what we're saying is it's our right, it's our private property, it's our land. And we have various turf cutting groups uh, that have come together and have protested and have fought for the right to cut their turf in Ireland because there is no other sustainable affordable means of heating in this country. Now, following from that, and again, I suppose part of the country that would be affected would be all of the west coast of Ireland, the Midlands. And if if you want to take it from the top of the west coast right down to the bottom of the west coast would be affected by what's called rewetting. Now, rewetting is part of this whole climate agenda whereby everybody wants to go back to nature. And as I've already said, you know, we as farmers and we as people from the west of Ireland and the west coast of Ireland and the Midlands that have any type of peaty land, we know our land. We can actually see the wildlife in our land. We can actually see the flora and fauna in our land. But what they want us to do is actually let the drains that are there overflow to a certain degree or a certain percentage high, thus flooding our lands. And the insulting part about it is they want us to be rewarded for doing this. Now, first and foremost, 
we also had a thing going back a few years called a set aside, whereby a portion of your your borders of your your meadows, you sowed your wildflowers, you you left it there for the 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 wildlife, which is fine. Farmers were complying with that, but this whole rewetting issue is is a hot potato. And again, I spoke of of the 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 independent TDs and the 9th of July. A meeting was held in in County Galway, and it was run by by again three independent TDs of a group: uh, Deputy Fitzmaurice, Deputy Deputy um, Harkin, and Deputy McNamara. And it was to invite all of our MEPs to discuss the whole rewetting issue mm. and how it was going to affect uh, our people in rural Ireland and the pressures that we were put in. And this. I suppose Don links into where you're saying about people coming in and taking over. So there's one very big question and nobody has come back with an answer to us yet. So let's just say a farmer has 80 acres. Let's just say out of that 80 acres, that's 70, 60 or 70 percent of that farm is peachy soil. And that man has suckler cows, beef and sheep. What happens to that farmer? Where does he go? Where does his children go? That farmer is going to be put out of his livelihood. Now, the next little thing here in relation to that is, is that against our constitution? We are entitled to make a livelihood. We don't want to be paid to, to actually make a livelihood. We want to actually work our farms, work our land, while accepting we can actually meet certain climate criteria, but not have it rammed down our throats like what is happening now. And that is very, very clear. And people in power will not like me for saying that, but that is the fact. And this has been approved by a vote in the EU recently. And that's despite only one MEP turned up to that meeting. So that again shows you where our MEPs are feeling and what they're talking and feeling about the people of Ireland, the people that voted them. So with European elections coming up in 2024, it's going to be very interesting to say the least. But there's only 13 MEPs representing Ireland. There's over, I think, is it over 700 MEPs altogether? In the EU so, Parliament, yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of people beginning to ask questions. You know, going on to Brexit, going on to why did the EU, why did England leave? Do you know why? With only 13 people, what power has Ireland there? What clout have we there? But yes. Why is Ireland being used as a scapegoat or a guinea pig to get all of these climate items pushed through? And that's what we believe here in Ireland. Our government has sold us out. Our farm organisations, to a certain degree, have sold us out. And that's what we're trying to fight. And that's what we're trying to save. Because if these land, this land is taken off us in this way, bit by bit by bit, that's where the conglomerates will come in. That's where... The vulture funds will come in. That's where all of these people will come in and take over our land. So, so, so just a, a side issue here. Um, going back to these farmer organisations, are any or all of them funded by compulsory levy or do they get money from the state as well? Uh, you talked about NGOs. I mean, some of them are getting taxpayer money. Uh, is any, are any of them being funded by, for instance, your your, your county, uh, taxes or even out of the EU, do they get some uh, some benefits from there to run those organisations? Now, Don, that's a very silly question. That's <laughs> the, answer that, the answer to that 
The answer to that is, and I'll start with the NGOs. Uh, there's over there is over three thousand plus NGOs in Ireland. Wow. Out of that, there is over forty environmental NGOs. And at this point in time, it is my opinion, as the spokesperson for Irish Rural Association, that these environmental NGOs are the people that is driving the climate agenda within our government and is pushing aside our farm organisations. That is the opinion that we're seeing. We're seeing it by action. We're seeing it by the way our Minister for Environment, Eamon Ryan, is behaving. And we're seeing that the two leaders, Michal Martin and Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, are complying with this and their government are complying with this. The Greens, which are led by Eamon Ryan and have 12 TDs in Dal Airden, this is the driving force of the Green Agenda. And nobody has got the you-know-whats to actually uh-huh. stand up and say, stop. In relation to the NGOs and the funding, there is over $6 billion of taxpayers' money going to these NGOs. In relation to the farm organisations, yes, they would get funds through membership and a little bit now. Again, like I said, the smaller ones are not really getting any funding. They're relying on membership. So they are they are struggling. They may have people in offices. They may have an office to run. So so no, they're not getting a whole lot. They're they're if they're if they're getting anything at all, indeed. But the main ones, yes, they are. They have they have their membership, and there, there's also there's also, of course, there is. Yeah. So there is so a levy on uh, per kilogram of meat or milk or something like that as well, funding those organisations. The, the main the main farming organization and I suppose the IFA and for 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 a long long time when we'd be getting our March check, uh, you would always see the lab, you go down you go down the list of your 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 invoice or your sales sheet and you would see a little thing here uh, X amount going to the IFA, and I remember here when I took over from my dad I seen this and you know uh, what's the story here like I mean we're not members of the IFA why the hell. Or somebody getting money that they're not entitled to, and I said, "No, take that off." So, and that's what we're doing, and and that's what a lot of farmers are beginning to do that that don't want uh, a levy like this going to the IFA, and it is the IFA only that that you see that in on on our March sheets. You don't see it going anywhere else. <clears throat> and the same organization, and yes, I am again being critical because yes, this will be going out uh, on our page when when we have the podcast. Um, yes, I am critical because. They have they have um, the finger in a lot of pies where there 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 is monies coming in, um, and stuff like that. And it's it's there, it's visible, uh, and it's just it's not acceptable anymore. They're they've got too big of an organisation in the sense of representing the ordinary people of this country, and that's why farmers feel absolutely rejected, dejected. But yet a lot of the farmers have gone back gone back to them. We have. I suppose you have Chagas, which would be the advisory group to the government and to the IFA in relation to to doing the figures and doing the sums as to grassland management, as to all the scientific sides of things. And they're linked in with the IFA as well. So there's a there's a link in there. You have MII, which is Meat Industry Ireland. You have Borbia, which is mm, that's a whole different subject. Uh, in the sense of what's what's happening with Borbia and the labelling systems and what's happening at imports and 
just previous to the summer holidays, they, they were actually in, in front of the Giant Committee for Agriculture. We have several questions uh, in relation to the workings of Borbea and how things are packaged and how things are stamped. Um, and when um, a, a, a meat product comes into this country via import, whether it's a live animal or whether it's a carcass animal, and when it goes into a factory setup, what actually does it come out as? Does uh, does it come out as the product of, for argument's sake, New Zealand or, or, or Australia or any other European country? Or does it come out with a, a board B, a stamp? Which uh, we have a lot of questions about and we're seeking a lot of clarity on that at the moment. And that is going back to the 2019 protests. So there's a lot of questions that have to be answered. There's a lot of challenges that have to be made to this, what we call them, is the cosy cartel. And, and that's what's happening. They've been too comfortable for years. Uh, if we're being compliant, then they actually need to to uh, wake up, smell the coffee and say, we're not taking this line down anymore. We cannot take it lying down anymore because farmers are going to the wall. And, you know, that's the hard cold fact. And the first farmers that will be going to the wall will be the smaller ones, will be the West of Ireland ones, will be the Western Seaboard ones, will be all of those that that, that are feeling all of these rules and regulations, particularly in relation to, to the climate. I mean, at the moment, we see because of, of the derogation and, and the fertilizer issue, we see the dairy industry um, now feeling the pinch as to what's going to happen if, if this derogation goes through with the figures that's there at the moment. Um, but yet, um, there's a big rah-rah about that now, and it's a big thing. And because it's the dairy industry and they're the biggest industry in, in Ireland, um, we see a big, a big push to to change those figures, but it's fact. It's what's happening. Every strand of farming in Ireland has been been attacked. Yep. So, can we just um, explain what the word derogation means? I mean, I've just looked up what it means on uh, Google, and um, maybe you've got a, an easier way of translating it because it's not a word we use in New Zealand, but uh, it's so it's unique to us. It is. I, I suppose the the whole derogation area. It's it's again. It's going back to to climate. It's going back to the use of fertilizers and the production of grasses, and particularly to the dairy industry. Um, if you have from a hundred cows up to twelve hundred cows, whatever the highest cow rate in, is in this country, you're naturally uh, going to have to to use fertilizers. And this is part and parcel of of the the climate agenda is that this this is cut, and it's it's impeding on the workings of the dairy industry where they're now only going to be allowed to use a certain percentage of the fertilizers. There's now liquid fertilizers. There's 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 a whole lot of scientific stuff being done. So this again is going back out to the to the EU where these regulations are been putting down. And as a result of these regulations, for the dairy farmers to meet the derogation figures, it, the possibility that they will have to face is cut back on their numbers of, of dairy herd cows or rent out more land. Mm. So there's catches there's catches everywhere in relation to whatever climate agenda that that we have to meet no matter in what section of agriculture in Ireland whether it's the dairy whether it's the beef whether it's the sheep and I mean we look at at this present climate in Ireland at the moment during the summer and indeed during early spring summer when when for example the price of lamb and sheep it should be at top rate but the price of lamb this year has been absolutely very very bad um and again, it's going back. The, the, the reasons that it's being used in relation to prices is because that 
it's now a commodity that is not wanted or that uh, the housewife may not want to have uh, a bigger chop, pay for a bigger chop, or that the market abroad is not there for the product. Um, sorry, lame duck excuse. Um, in, in actual fact, what's actually happening, and we know it from time to time, and we can actually we can actually track it. But again, it's there's a bit of work to be carried out on that all the time, which it will be for anybody that's watching this or listening to this uh, later on. Um, the imports, the imports that's coming into Ireland of lamb, which again will trace back to the 2019 protests, whereby lamb was coming in um live and lamb was coming in in carcass form and it was coming in from the uk and scotland and that's still what's happening and it's coming in through northern ireland that lorry loads of lamb come into ireland and it drives down the prices of our irish lamb and these lambs that's been imported is going into our factories and are being processed so you have factory agents uh coming to our marts and the majority of lambs are sold uh, at your local uh, livestock mart. And every week you'll hear a cut, a cut, and they're being dictated by the by the by the by the processors, which are the factories. And this is a huge issue here in Ireland. Why are the processors, the factories, been allowed to dictate the pace of our stock every week? And that's what's happening. It's because we believe that. In that week, or prior to that week, their 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 uh, their quota of 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 lamb has is reached. So therefore, what we we'll do, lads, is we'll reduce the price and we'll tell them, yeah, well, that's going to be the price this this week, and farmers will have to sell. Now, in relation to our our beef, which we are in Ireland uh, recognised all over the world for our quality beef. And for quality breeds, and we do have some of the finest stock, the finest breeders in the world in Ireland. And we're all—that's one thing we're very, very proud of in Ireland—is is the quality of our our commodities and our goods straight across the board. And um, but what we're seeing is is the same thing. There is is you have feedlots in Ireland, and every so often the feedlots have to fill up, or if the feedlots are filled, then you'll see a, a lowering of prices. And again. It's the processors and factories that are driving the the pricing on prices. that. And of course, I, I don't think anybody in the world has not heard of Mr. Larry Goodman and his his uh, beef companies, um, you know, ABP and and what he has done and set up all throughout the world in relation to companies and into Ireland. And again, you know, complacency, comfort, all of that is there that nobody actually challenges any of this. And Irish Rural Association has, in the last couple of months, called for a full investigation into our processing industry and hopefully that that would encompass Meat Industry Ireland, which is, is their factories uh, involved, Board BIA, because it's time that we actually had a good hard look at why this is happening, why the factories actually can dictate pace like this. We don't accept the excuses and the figures that are being given to us because common sense prevails from people that are that are standing on the ground and looking at, at what's happening. We're being told like lies and we're being just it's not it's not happening. Farmers are entitled to be paid a prime price for their prime product. 
Isn't it amazing, Don, how much when we listen to Jackie, I just find myself agreeing. This is exactly what's happened. You just said, Jack, Jackie, that, you know, you're proud of what you produce. The same thing here. It's, it's I think, our uh, quality of our politicians and our so-called representatives that needs leaves a lot to be desired. Incidentally, listeners, in case you're wondering, uh, Jackie uses the word TD often. And Jackie, TD is your, uh, I think, equivalent to our MP, Member of Parliament of your lower house. Okay. Correct. And in the Irish essence, it's called Chakta Dala, TD. It's our public representative that sits in National Parliament. Right. Now, one TD of yours, Minister Ryan or Mr. Mm -hmm. Imon Ryan, who is <clears throat> a contributor to the World Economic Forum agenda on their pages. He, I think it was late last year when he, or was it uh, 2021? I forget these COVID years have been so crazy. They've all sort of blurred into one. He spoke how he would actually prefer a one world dictatorship. And this man, he is your minister of, for communications, energy, natural resources, head of your Irish Green Party, doing all these climate negotiations. What did he mean? What does he want? A one world dictatorship? Well, you see, that actually goes back to a 2019 um, interview and we actually found it and we put it up on our page. And it's extremely worrying when you hear uh, uh, one of the three leaders of our national parliament coming out and say, if I had my way and there was a one world and you're there and you stop and you think about what exactly does he mean in that sense? And what he means in that sense is, I guess it's to, as I said to you, is to promote all of these European issues, in, in, in put Ireland out there as the good goody two shoes of Europe by pressurizing all of the people. I've already mentioned Minister Ryan's um, ethos and feelings in relation to the turf. I've already said about a lot of the things that that's happening and the pressures that have been put on Ireland. But what Minister Ryan is not addressing, for example, is we have what's we have several cement factories in this country. And in, in those cement factories, there is over a million tires been burnt in those hmm. cement factories a year. Now, that's the same air pollution and same air that you and I and everybody else in Ireland is breathing in. We are now looking at in relation to the peat factories. He has closed all of those facilities. But now we see a facility opening up in Shannon Bridge, County Offaly, and it has to be fueled and driven by diesel. So while the other factory was fueled by turf. So again, you know, we're questioning all of these uh, ridiculous uh, decisions and why those decisions are being made. They're argumentative. We're questioning the whole area in relation to the electric cars uh, and that whole scenario. And I know when when I was doing uh, one of the, the um, national radio programs, I traveled up by public transport. And I actually challenged him on that night. Take care of your own turf. Look at Dublin City. Sort out the situation in Dublin City before you actually attack rural Ireland. Minister Ryan, mm, a lot of people think that he's a very silly man. Mm, I wouldn't pass him as silly, but I think the people that are around him, and he has an awful lot of advisors around him, uh, I think he's a very dangerous man for rural Ireland. He is a very dangerous man in his own personal thinking and his own personal agenda. And it is my personal opinion. That's what he's pushing. 
we have Artishik and Artanishta, Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar, who are not in any way stopping him because they, they are in government. They don't want to go out of government. In essence, uh, in our opinion, this country is being ran by 12 TDs because they're pushing the green agenda and nobody is standing up to them. And that is the feeling of the Irish people that we are t talking to, communicating with, or whatever, whether it's agriculture, whether it's the, the agri-food sector, whether it's forestry, whether it's seafords. We look at what's happening to our fishing industry at the moment. It's absolutely cruel to be, to be watching boats on Irish waters going away to be destroyed. And, and that is what's happening in our Irish waters. And if you Google, if you Google, there, there is a, a good man there, uh, Patrick Murphy. He is the, the Southwestern, the, he deals with all of the fishing issues there in the Southwest. And he has been fighting uh, the whole issue in relation to what's happening in Ireland fishing wise. And it's sad to see boats driving into port, the finest of, of, of trawlers and boats for fishing in this country being destroyed. And what we're conscious of now is that the same thing is going to happen to our, our, our agricultural industry. But Eamon Ryan is no friend of rural Ireland. Eamon Ryan is no friend of agriculture in Ireland. That's my personal opinion, and that's my organisational opinion. And it's the feelings of many, many people in this country. And all one has to do is, is, is watch the pages. You know, when you hear somebody standing up in our national parliament and telling us that, oh, yeah, well, everything is OK if you go out to your south-facing side of the house and, and plant your window box full of lettuce. You know, it's... It's nonsensical stuff that's coming out of his, his mouth, but he has this one world agenda. He has made that statement, and that is what he's pushing. And the people that are suffering are the people of rural Ireland and particularly uh, the members of, of the farming community and, and agriculture in general on, across all the board. So just a, a, getting a bit of context around um, the, the recent few minutes of, of discussion uh, around the local production uh, being uh, caught up in and mixed in with um, with stuff coming across the border from Northern Ireland, what is if 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 Ireland itself uh, was to consume all its food, what would it have to export? Is it a uh, seriously um, net exporter of food, or is it uh, self sufficient? Uh, just self sufficient? What is it? I'm I'm trying to get a handle on what is the mix because I think your accusation really was stuff coming across the border. It's there's price fixing going on. There's manipulation in the market going on. But you know to probably get a handle on it, I need to understand what is the local consumption of the local food. Okay, I, I suppose in in relation to to exports, Don, what I could say to you is there's around um, fifteen and a half billion worth of of agri food exports. There, that sector would cause cause for about nine and a half percent of of total goods exports, um. That would also culminate about one hundred and eighty different type of of markets in dairy. We're exporting about five point billion in in exports, and that would include butter and and cheese. That would uh, would go over the the one billion mark. Beef alone is two point four. In exports, and that's the eighth largest export exporter of bonus beef in the world. Tillage, uh, cereals, beverages, one point eight billion. That's a twenty percent increase. You know, and we have seaford seaford exports exports as well. But 
the sad point about it is, at this point in time, it is our opinion that Ireland is not food secure because what we're actually doing is importing, importing, importing. And let's just say, hypothetically, if anything was to happen tomorrow morning in the world, Ireland at this point in time has three days food in stock in, in that can be held in, in warehouses and the retail industry and distribution like that. Ireland is not food secure. And while a lot of people have gone back through the COVID period and started their own little gardens and planting and all of the rest of it, that is great for the mind. It's great for the body. It's great for your health because you're producing something that is done by your own hand. It's healthy. You know what's gone into it. Whereas food imports, we're looking at, for example, carrots, maybe 49 cent. You cannot compare that import to actually producing carrots, producing the humble potato and, and trying to match those import prices. Plus the import of food we're looking at uh, on social media, in the national media, in all news media, we're looking at meats being injected with stuff. We're looking at foods being sprayed with stuff. We're looking at, we're having the whole concern of, of, of Brazilian beef coming into our country, which is not regulated. Uh, Ireland is one of the most highly regulated uh, countries in Europe in relation to our foodstuffs. But we are not food secure. And that is a very, very concerning issue for, for our Assurance Association. And it's an issue moving forward that we will be as this agenda goes on in relation to climate. Um, and naturally enough, there are people out there in, in, in the farming world, because they have never um, dealt with or learned how to sow foodstuffs. There's, there, there's areas, again, like I said to you about Cork and Galway, there's areas of the country that would be specifically re related towards uh, the whole horticulture side of things. And that would be more so up in the east of the country, in the Dublin, Meath area, all around there where there is very, very good land specifically for that purposes. But if you go to the Midlands or any other part, that you're 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 just talking about people and their back gardens and a smaller indigenous industry and and farm markets and I think farm markets is something that's going to actually uh, grow more in relation to what's actually happening to our food industry. So that's the bigger picture. We are not food secure in our opinion in 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 Ireland. That's that's a very worrying and concerning factor. Gosh, and yet they have this whole report of, you know, uh, sustainable agriculture in Ireland, a 2030 roadmap to sustainable food futures, all of this going on. It uh, often makes me think, you know, they're first destroying the very, very sector that they're virtue signaling towards. And for what? I guess like yours, you are certainly not mincing your words, Jackie. There comes a time when one has to stop looking for a reason in treason. They are yes. doing this on purpose yes that this. that is that is that is our belief that is our knowledge that's what we're seeing from from reading reports and that's really all they are is is these reports they look lovely because it it ensures that hmm. ireland is getting is ireland ireland is getting funds that they they're they're sending to the eu and it looks lovely at eu level and all of this sort of stuff but break that down to the steps of the stairs to the ordinary tom and Mary on on the farm, 
that are there trying to make a living, trying to to actually exist and trying to do all of that without the pressures and the strains. And I mean, as, as we've said pre, pre-interview, um, we're dealing with a very serious issue at the moment in relation to all farm and mental health and well-being. And sadly, sadly, the numbers of suicides that are farm-related and coming from rural Ireland, it's very, very sad. It's very, very concerning. And and this is what's actually happening. People cannot actually deal with the pressures and and the strains that they have at the moment. I mean, for for me, I I I don't mind talking to people. I will talk until the cows come home. But what you see is what you get. I I don't mince my words. I never have, no matter what part of my life I'm in. I call a spade a spade. And if people ring me during the day, during the nighttime for a chat to say, you know, and it has happened. You know, and say, geez, Jackie, look, I'm I'm under such strain here. I don't know what I should do with A, B, or C. How can I get around it? It's a serious, serious issue, the pressures that are being put on the people of rural Ireland and our farming community. You know, and we have to try and do something to help that and alleviate that. But people have to also take responsibility themselves, cut their cloth to their means, and stand up with us, beside us, our supporters, because we will drive that agenda. Excellent. That is good to hear. And I'm so glad someone there has you in their corner because Dawn knows we have struggled here and we've had, you know, bodies that take our compulsory levies from our commodities, be it milk from our farm or meat from someone else. They get a direct levy, I mean, whether we like it or not. But all they do is side with the government. Yeah. All they do is side with the government. And Dawn yeah. was heading it, uh, you know, this was not a levy funded organization, but Don, what is what what would you like to add here? I think he's having a slight problem connecting here. But it it is really sad. We've in the last two years, especially, what we've seen out here, the number of rural suicides out here are not ending. We don't seem to see the next generation, the younger generation, come into farming. I mean, we have we call farmer meetings and so on, and I look into a sea of white-haired people. The younger generation is just sort of given up there. Yeah, that, that, that would be right. The demographic is of an, an older age group here. Uh, the younger generation, a little bit of an improvement. Uh, the females, there's more women now getting involved in farming in Ireland. Mm. Um, but we would like to see a lot more. But I think technology is is what's going to help uh, the younger generations because that's what they're um, zooming in on. But in, in relation to that, I suppose the whole area of digitalization is the next concern um, because we're now facing this so-called cashless society. Now, Irish Rural Association, again, has, has taken a, an extreme lead role in relation to this because we believe, number one, cash is still a legal tender in our country and law mm-hmm. has to be passed to do that. Number two, uh, you know, if you offer a facility or a service your cash, they actually have to take it. Um, and the, we have what's called a national plowing championship here in Ireland. And they, they said, decided, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to, um, you know, you have to book your tickets and you have to pre-book and you have to all of that sort of stuff. 
neglecting the fact that the people of Ireland and, and the farming community in rural Ireland and indeed a certain section of urban Ireland were the ones that have supported them down through the years. And it got quite hot and heavy for a period of time. And we've had, um, you know, a local council in, in Cork that decided, you know, that they were going to write to them and, you know, request that this change. This came on our table. We said, yes, we will support that. Um and, and they had to claw back to a certain degree and, and allow a cash system. But what they've done now, which is absolutely, in my opinion, completely illegal, is it was €25 Euros to actually book your ticket and get into the facility. Mm. And they're using health and safety on this. But now all of a sudden, if you're paying cash, you have to pay €30. Euros. So oh. what does that mean? Does that mean we're actually paying for the bank facilities to collect the cash, just like what's called our NCT, which is... Which is um, which is the service that is for, for, for checking out our cars and our vehicles and our DVOs, uh, they have tried to say that they're going cashless. Um, that has um, gone against them as well. There has to be a system whereby you are allowed to use your cash. And Absolutely. I mean, there's generations. There's generations out there that's not going to be able to use. And I, I don't have a credit card or any type of a card. And frankly, I don't want to because I want to be in control of my cash payments, my in, my ins and my outs. I know exactly what I'm paying. But yes, the famous electric picnic, it was all tap, 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 tap. And everything was 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 uh, was digital. And, and this is a huge concern. And again, it's a diktat coming from. Uh, Europe, but it's coming from more than Europe, as as we've sort of mildly touched about the Bindenberg meetings and what yep. that agenda is there. And you know, while we don't want to be classed as um, you know conspiracy theorists, we don't want to be pigeonholed as a lefty or a righty. We're not. We're just people that's beginning to find out this information and see what's going on behind the scenes in other worlds and in places where all of these people get together and speak on our behalf and work on our behalf. We didn't make a decision on the likes of going digital or a cashless society, and, and we should. There, there's decisions being made at local level, at national level, at European level, but we have no input into this. No, we don't. We seem to have these so-called consultations, but ultimately they seem to be pre-decided outcomes, and somehow <laughs> that is that is what's passed. And most of the time, it is under a guise of health and safety, but it it is all about control. Now, all the only thing we saw here in our rural dailies was about the. 200,000 cowcal that Ireland was talking about. We've seen a few headlines about the Dutch farmers. Uh, Dora and I have spoken with uh, one of the MEPs, Teddy Baudet. We've spoken with another federation, which is headed uh, by, and I'm forgetting, he's a two IC Jasu Bells. So they seem to be, it's, it's a common thread amongst all of us, isn't it? We are all in the same doo-doo together. We are in the same. We are in the same boat together. But sadly, the the this proposal of of the call in Ireland has made media all over the world, and we don't seem to see um, other European countries and indeed non-European countries as well. We don't seem to see this quantity or these figures. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I have missed something. I don't know. But it seems to be very very heavy on a small little country. That has to be, you know, it has to be able to fend for itself. We are an island country. We cannot and we should not be able to, to have to be all the time relying on imports. As I've said to you earlier, if push comes to shove and something was to happen, 
God forbid, tomorrow morning, three days food is all that's there in 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 the the deeper in the what you call it centers, in the retail centers. You know that's very very serious, and you know taking away something that is there to feed us is to provide for us, whether it's it's the cutting down, the rewetting, the culling of our animals, whatever. You know, I mean, cows farting in the name of God. They've gone to sheep now farting. What's next? <laughs> you know, it's it's. what about all the wild animals that fart? What are they going to do with all of them? Are they going to cull all of them? You know, it's nonsensical, but nobody is standing up asking the question and says, stop, why? You know, and, and, and we have to start doing that. We have to start uh, questioning. We have to start the fight back. Yeah, well, certainly it's, um, whether it's burping or farting or peeing, it doesn't matter. Um, it's all about, um, give us the evidence that this is deleterious to anything, uh, rather than just finding a way to, to humor us or, or put us down in front of the, um, urban population, really. And the people in suits, uh, seem to like doing that. Uh, it, it's interesting. Um, I haven't quite got a handle on the, your, your feeling and relationship with the Northern Ireland uh, uh, farming organisations from this interview so far, or the ones that may be in Great Britain, in UK, uh, sorry, in England or Wales or Scotland. Um, what's your connection there? Is there any anything good? The honest answer to that, Don, is at, at this point in time, we, we actually haven't uh, gone near anything um, Northern Ireland, Scotland, or, or uh, the UK. The only one that we would be watching is um, one farmer up in, in the Welsh, uh, and, and he's quite good in that. We haven't gone down that road yet because we've been too busy um, dealing with other issues. Um, but I, I think I think in relation to, to Brexit, um, how they're finding out really i think it's too early to actually put a handle on that as to what sort of what sort of an outcome that is going to have effect on, on ireland we haven't seen any major massive reports on that i mean the the you have the the statement coming out by on Taoiseach that uh you know it has been disruptive on our island which it has but it also puts a situation that that both governments now are speaking on a different level rather than speaking as as eu counterparts so um, to answer your question, no, we haven't gone near. Maybe the next time when we're doing a chat, uh, I'll have spoken to, to someone in Scotland and Wales and the UK and Northern Ireland farm organisations. But at the moment, we just simply haven't the time because of the issues that are that are here in our own country and are, and are in rural Ireland that we have to, to, to basically address. All right. Look, and I'm sorry, listeners, I've had a bit of technology issues on the way through this interview, so I may have missed the answer to this question if Jasper did it, but um, or asked it. But the question for me now is, uh, and it might seem a bit a bit blunt, what sort of protections do you get from the EU? What do Irish farmers get from the EU uh, in terms of uh, whether subsidies. it's environmental environmental payments or or subsidies of any kind? Um. <clears throat> now you're touching on a very sensitive subject for me. I knew, um, I, I, knew I would be. <laughs> okay, first of all, I suppose I think um, I think farmers, because of all of the subsidies, subsidies and a lot of the subsidies that are EU funded, has led farmers to be reliant on of these subsidies to work their farms, to improve their farms. They know, for example, that X amount is coming in 
at such a time in the year and they go out and they get their bank loans and they might build a new building, whether it's in the dairy industry or whether it's a slatted shed for their sheep or their cattle. Um, the hotbed at the moment is that some of these subsidies, the payments from our own government department this year are been delayed by a month, which is, which is now actually after opening up quite a large can of worms because financially it is going to put farmers into a, a very financial uh, tight situation, which again, there's no specific correct answer for. Um, pers personally, the thought process there is that the farmers now are, are literally brainwashed by all of these schemes. And Don, as you and I and everybody else knows, the golden egg is not going to lay for much longer particularly when we look at, at uh, the cut in, in CAP, particularly when we look at what's down the road, particularly when we look at other European countries that want to come into the EU, naturally Irish funds are going to be cut straight across the board in all in all services, not alone in agriculture. So when it comes to 2025, when it comes to 2027, it's our opinion that, that there will be less money to go around the pot. So farmers, and that's why I keep reiterating, no matter whether I'm talking face-to-face -face or on a media, farmers now need to start to cut their cloth to their means. Mm. Wise words. And look, I, I have an ethos, and it is around uh, maintaining authority over property. And that's what you're trying to do. Uh, you, you're, you're certainly presenting that case. Uh, you know, New Zealand is different. We have zero protection mechanisms in this country. Uh, 1985, we were we were had the apron strings cut off effectively, and we've been cold turkey. Uh, we cold, went cold turkey then, uh, and and we sort of sort of uh, have to compete in this, this world with. Yeah, subsidies and protection mechanisms. But at the end of the day, this is how I see it. Um, you have to uh, maintain authority over your over property for you and your members. And that's what New Zealanders need to have done for them as well. And currently, I think we both have the same issue, which is mm. our organisations that we funded and uh, have thought were doing the right thing by us, perhaps are not. Uh, and in your case, you've certainly put the case that they aren't. So, um uh, I don't know what we could do next, but I think the, the the last point really should be is then as much as we may have differences, we've got similarities, as I've just alluded to, and we do need to form this sort of global alliance around trying to hold back on, and you talked about the WEF and maybe the UN, doesn't matter what it is, all these unelected people having so much say over us uh, have got to have the stoppers put on them. And I think that's where the farmers united of the world could make a difference. But at the moment, we're disparate. We're all over the shop and uh, we're not really holding the line. And in fact, I think just listening to you, you have um, many more um, entities in uh, the farmer organisations, like 70,000 odd members by the sound of it. We don't have anywhere near that uh, in the, in the, especially the, uh, primary production side of sheep and beef farming and dairy farming. But uh, we, we have we have that one thing in common, which is uh, uh, we need to stop these people in authority selling us out uh, under the pretense of doing us doing good, under the pretense of doing good. 
Correct, Don. And I suppose the other issue that we, we are facing here in Ireland is to protect our private property, to protect the ownership of our yes. land, yeah. protect the ownership of our bogs. That That is a big issue. That is going to actually pop up its ugly head. Um, it's not too far away because we, we have, we, we're aware that there is a certain type of a referendum being brought out. But hidden in that referendum and in that wording of the referendum is the whole issue in relation to owning the ownership of your private property, your house, your land, your farm, whatever you actually do own. So that's very, very concerning. So like, like I've said all along, our role as, as a very, very small group of people um, is to get that information out there by whatever possible means we can. And, and, you know, once you deal with facts and once you deal with, once you have the evidence in your hand and that it's factual and it's correct and that you can get to the people. And that's what we have to try and do, not alone in Ireland, but throughout the world. And as I said, not by being classed as a conspiracy theorist, not yeah. being pigeonholed as, as something on the political left or the political right. We're not. We're ordinary people working of the land, of working in our rural areas, indeed working in our urban areas. It doesn't matter. It's, 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 it's something, you know, we have to do this. It's not about climate. Yeah, and so um, so I actually understand all of that, uh, Jackie. And, and in the end, analysis, uh, it is about uh, all of us having to um, put our case and be staunch on issues uh, such as this. Uh, you talked about property rights. I talk about them all the time. I, let's hope that the Irish, uh, the British, the European Union countries America, Australia, New Zealand can all get some common sense on this. We, none of us are scared of the evolution of, of things. I don't think we understand the world, uh, an evolving, um, uh, dynamic place, but it is around these overt extreme controls that are starting to, uh, wear us down. And look, Jackie, I, I, I just implore you to keep going. Uh, you, you put your case with passion and, uh, we need many more Jackies in this world. And I I have to say thanks to social media for giving you giving us you because that's where I found you. And I think that's where Jaspreet found you as well. So uh, all part of your arm in the in the weeks and months and years ahead, because um you certainly have got um a way about you that presents a case uh that people are gonna listen to, I think. Thank you, folks. And it's been it's been good speaking to you both. And perhaps maybe when we settle down a little bit more, we'll actually return the favor and have a chat with you guys as to what's happening in your own country and in relation to farming and, and stuff like that. And, you know, that's one way of, of maybe spreading the word and, and getting the feeling out there as to what's happening to us all in our respective countries. But uh, enjoy it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Great. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed and here we are at the last segment of the week. That is the Sustainable Development Goals and Jill and I are up to goal number six. Goal number six, water. The United Nations SDG number six. Verbatim just says that goal number six is about making sure everyone has clean water and sanitation. But Jill is going to interpret, help me interpret it. Hey, Jill. Hi, Jess Preet. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. And gosh, between three waters and everything else, I thought we'd be watered out by now. But uh, let's, before we head into three waters, the New Zealand perspective, 
Let's look at how the United Nations has played a goal in us reaching where we are at right now, which is effectively the center government, stealing local ratepayer-paid assets. So the background story, please. Let's translate the goal first of all. What does clean water and sanitation mean, actually? Okay, from my from my little little list of um, translated goals. So, goal six is to ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. So, the translation of that is um, all water is controlled by corporations, local government or state, including rivers and wells on private land. So, you know, this is the complete control of one of the one of the most important things in everybody's life. So, so yeah, that's that's where we're heading. And it's not just the United Nations that's involved in this. This is also very much in partnership with the um, World Economic Forum. Mm. And they are split too into their own partners. But I will we'll get back to that. So yeah, let's let's start with what happened with Three Waters. Yeah. So the United Nations in 2021, the report uh, on the value of water, the one we'll be talking about, you and I, but the prelim to it said that while everyone recognizes water is essential to life, all life, including humans, it's often taken for granted. As a result, it's frequently misused, polluted or wasted. Giving value to water is a better way to recognize it's important its importance to us as individuals, also to society and the environment from which it comes and it ultimately returns. So what they want is water monetized, all water. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've now been hearing of uh, LIDAR mapping with the New Zealand of groundwater aquifers and a whole lot of, you know, paranoia being spread around how everyone's going to run out of water. But this whole thing began because... You cannot, you cannot control what you can't manage and you can't manage what you can't measure. And that's what's happening. Well, that's the whole, that's the whole thing of these aims, isn't it? With Agenda 21 is to be able to measure and um, track everything on the face of the planet so that it can be controlled. And of course, water is such an integral part of that, but you know, we've we've done some as human beings, we've some done some disastrous things with water, but we're pretty self-correcting. And and over our human history, you know, we've we've moved it from one place to another. Um, we've cleaned it. We've done it remarkable things with water. And to to have a global governance, have full control over it, especially a corrupt one, um, just sends terror to my bones, really. And that's the whole been the whole march of control over the last three. I mean, it's been going on for decades, but over the last three years, it's been amplified. So your climate discussions have been captured. Your health was everything that the World Health Organization, United Nations body says, control there. Agriculture is going down the gurgler. And there we have water as well. So this report Jill and I are going to refer to for the next few minutes. You can find it online. Just search for the United Nations World Water Development Report 2021. It's got a subtitle called Valuing Water. And the one thing that has been very, very audible to me over this debate around three waters has been suddenly it's about co-governance. It's about the treaty. It's about indigenous rights. And it all began, believe it or not, in 2017 as a suspected 
uh, water issue on a council premises, uh, council facility in Havelock North, which may have led to two people dying. And from that, it morphed to this multi-billion dollar water grab, asset grab. And one wonders how this goes on. But to find a similar theme in this UN report is uh, no coincidence that what the whole conversation that we've been having in New Zealand is already preempted in it. They talk about cultural values of water in this report. They talk about how the Burana people of Ethiopia, water value as a source that you share in as a member of a descent-based collective. They also talk about, uh, Jill, they already had the Maori history in this, the United Nations report, talking about place-based value systems and the stewardship and legal personhood of the Wanganui River. So New Zealand was being held up as an example in this. They talk about the fact that the Maori peoples generally recognize an indivisible whole rather than breaking environmental complexities into components like, you know, riverbeds and aquifers and so on. So the Maori holistic approach avoids dividing water into socio-cultural, economic and ecological values. And the river has its own life, its own personhood, its own character. In 2017, says this United Nations report, the New Zealand Parliament conferred the Wanganui River legal personhood. And even though there is still the success of the Maori approach to stewardship is still subject to debate, the legal personhood is recognized. So if you thought that this was new, what happened, that the debate over a Havelock North poisoning turned into this whole co-governance and race relations and ethnicity issues, it was all foreshadowed here. That is exactly what was planned. And it certainly helped the divide and rule, didn't it, Jill? Well, it did. And with the Havelock North, Havelock North water incident, um, so they got, was it Camp Lebecla? Camp Lebecla got, yeah. Yeah. got into the water supply from a heavy rain issue and then it got into the, it was sheep poo, I think, got yeah. into the, and, and it blew up for a little while and then it just went silent. And as far as I know, nobody has been charged. Um, nobody's gone to jail. Um, nobody's been put in prison for what could have been two deaths um, arising from people getting sick in Havelock North. So it sort of suddenly it went dark and then suddenly exploded with three waters because from the Havelock North incident, suddenly all water in New Zealand was almost, you, through the adverts on TV, you would think that nearly all water was undrinkable and, and that our water situation, our drinking water um our sewerage water and wastewater was a was a crumbling mess, but that is blatantly not true. And I'm still angry about three waters, Jasper. It was a, a blatant. Are you? Thing. You could have fooled me, Jill. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it is a, it is a blatant theft, and it and it is a massive money grab, and it's going to cost every New Zealander dearly as the price of water. Something that you you had for free um, in a lot of places or at a low cost is, is going to skyrocket. So, yep. But when you when you look through this report, there is nothing much about um, how we've been amazing with our water, how we've gotten water to people who normally who didn't have access to water, but everything comes back to how people in Africa look at water, how the um, 
Aboriginals look at water, how Māori look at water, and and the whole other contingent of human beings on the planet had just been completely ignored. Yep. Yep. So, so uh, when this began in New Zealand, before that, LGNZ, that is the body, the advocacy body for all New Zealand councils, it had a position paper in 2015 that is still uh, available for you to see. It is simply called the Three Waters Position Paper. And at that point in 2017, LGNZ, which speaks for the councils, effectively said that full-blown economic regulation of the water sector is unnecessary. And the cost seen in other sectors regulated this way would predict that this would also out uh, that the cost here would outweigh the benefits of the change. And they said that a key finding of the LGNZ Three Waters Project is that the sector is not fundamentally broken, with services confirmed to be reliably delivered at a reasonable cost. And then what happened? That in 2020, LGNZ signed a heads of agreement with the government stating that it believes that Three Waters is in the best interests of the communities it represents and that it would help drum up support to Three Waters. So I was never consulted, no rate peers were consulted, and it went ahead because just like the climate change agendas that are marching on, again, with the guidance given by our single source of climate science, the United Nations IPCC, the same way the waters agenda has been going on, the control here, and uh, the mechanisms which, you know, happily include divide and rule, which helps the government, have been in play for a long time. At the time when Three Waters Bees were being pushed, we had Castalia and other group of consultants warning councils that this is not going to go well. We were modeled on the Scottish water regulator. And as the news coming out of uh, London uh, the Thames water has been showing for the last three, four days. There has been absolute strife. And our water model, now three waters, is going to be using the same highly leveraged financing structure. Where is yeah, well, this going you know, to end? Mm-hmm. If anybody's looking for a job, get to be a CEO on a water um, a water Entity. board like Thames because they their CEO is paid huge money and their entire Thames water infrastructure is, is entirely crumbling. But Jasper, I'd just like to pop back to LGNZ mm-hmm. um, and, and what happened there. <clears throat> so LGNZ has its own council, which is called National Council. Um, and it, again, go back to the word Soviet, a system of councils. A, and most people within those councils don't know what the one above them is doing. So National Council actually signed a secret heads of agreement mm-hmm. with the government. So this is between the Minister for Three Waters, which was Nanaya Mahuta, and the Minister of LGNZ, which was Nanaya Mahuta. Um, and that was the that's not the person, that was the two positions that this person was holding at that time, just like we have the um, socialist Kieran McAnulty as the minister for both Three Waters and LGNZ, because that's how our government's structured. Structured. It is also the same in the National Party, so yeah. so let's not get I confused mean, the, the, that it's just the Labour Party. But they did this in secret. They signed this Heads of Agreement in secret 
um, saying that they were quite happy to go ahead with the three waters thing. They weren't going to really kick against it. And that was done two days before the local government conference in, it was in 2020, I think it was. So nearly every mayor that is and CEO that is a member of LGNZ had no idea that this was happening. But then, Absolutely none. Let's look at what the problems were, why Castalia was warning us and why, I mean, what were the warnings that we did not heed about what was going to go on? So Castalia did reports and they're available. That's C-A-S-T-A-L-I-A, Castalia, for anyone who goes Googling. But it did reports for the government, centre government, and then it did, uh, you know, custom-made reports for a few counties. And they very clearly said that uh, the costs, the the sort of assumptions that the government is working on do not work. They said that, number one, all the councils have to go work at the Scotland model and New Zealand and Scotland, while they might have comparable populations close to 5 million, the similarities end there. In New Zealand, 87% of us live in urban populations and uh, po urban population hasn't really increased that much. The uh, Scotland structure at that point, the densities differ, the topography, the geography differs, and we in New Zealand, we are really spread out, while most of the Scottish population lives in towns and cities that are relatively close to each other, relatively close to each other. It is not the same in New Zealand. And we have gone on with this nonsense. They also claimed that the assumption in one of the modeling was that unless the government does something, Councils individually on their own would not be doing anything for water. So, you know, you just need to grab it. It makes no sense mm. what they have done. No, it doesn't. And and in fairness, Castilia was hired by the local, um, it was to report to the communities for local democracy. So yeah. there were a number of mayors that were absolutely up in arms um, about what was going on with the, the three water reform mm. um, and the, and the, how it was how it was being modeled so what they found was cutting out water entities into four um, mega entities so the mm. report found that the entities will have poor accountability to the public which is quite true because my entity will be in Christchurch so if we have problems down here in central Otago um, the chances of them getting somebody there relatively quickly is is going to be is going to be small um, the reform increases overstated investment. Yeah, um, and they just they just went to the blanket that we are going to need 120 to 185 billion dollars of capital. Councils yeah. kept putting in requests for information. Tell us how you reach these figures. Zip. Nothing. Yep. Um, there's a there's a, a risk of higher bills and the cost savings that that what we've been told is um, and our councils have been told. Um, what they've put in the report, how they've worded it, is highly implausible, yeah, um, they, which they basically have, means they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> they have asked, they've said that is implausibly high capex and opex so capital uh, and uh, operating expenditure efficiencies assumed. I mean, we know that whenever a new bureaucracy yep. is formed, there is no efficiencies there. There's a whole lot of people justifying their jobs and one must remember that both National and Labour 
agreed that there was need for a new mega entity, the new water regulator, Tamota Aruwai. That, well, that was a bipartisan agreement there. So that's, again, too, that, that the whole thing, when you read through that, um, Omata, what is it? Oh, Tamamata, why? What, I can't the, say it. Tamota Aruwai. Yep. So <clears throat> when, you, when you really dig down into that, that means that water must be um, absolutely pure, as it was pre-human habitation. Yeah. And and to think that water was pure pre-human habitation is is ridiculous. Things still died in water. We we still have mudslides, landslides, and 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 stuff like that, whether we're here or not. <laughs> but having stated that it needs to be like pre-human habitation, all of these entities now want to fill us with um, chloride and 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 fluoride, um, which is very definitely a post-human a human thing development. But, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these these huge water entities, there's going to be poor accountability, there's going to be increased financial risk. Um and you and, are and your water bills are just going to keep going like your rates are just going to keep going up and up and up and up to to pay a monstrous beast at the top, which just keeps getting bigger and bigger and more and more bureaucracy. And totally, and just like the United Nations, we will have now created these mega entities in New Zealand that will have representation that's unelected, unaccountable, playing fast and loose with your money. And hey, before before Jill and I sign off, it still needs to be kept in mind that this all began from a Campylobacter poisoning at a council facility in Havelock North. How that turns out to, you know, what was it, 9,000 jobs in this mega entity or something? How yes. that translates into... A bureaucrat's wet dream? I don't know. But New Zealand, we've moved from the directives of the United Nations to dollarize water, to put a value in water, to control and measure it. And boy, oh boy, happy to live it. Well, you know, again, it's a bit of a worry with the United Nations, and I, and I go back to them, that they are corrupt. Um, the United Nations has been in Haiti for over 20 years now. And this is the this is the country that, or this is the organisation that wants to look after us. But what happened in Haiti after the earthquake? Um, <clears throat> overseas soldiers were brought in to to help with the earthquake cleanup, and these were the United Nations peacekeepers and stuff. So what happened was raw sewage was dumped into the rivers and the canals, and it killed tens of thousands of people with cholera, and it made over a million more people um, sick. Now, this wasn't that long ago. We knew about cholera um, and we know how it makes people people ill. So Port-au-Prince in, in Haiti, its capital, has got a population of one and a half million people. It has barely any running water and it has no proper sewage system. Now, the person who was in charge, the UN envoy at that stage was Bill Clinton. You know, so how can the United Nations write all these huge reports about how it wants us to have safe water when its very own practices um, are murderous? There's there's no other there's no other um, there's no other word for it. They knew that when they brought the soldiers in from Nepal that they were carrying cholera, and yet their sewage went straight into the water system upstream from where everybody lived. So, and of course, the United Nations is in cahoots with the World Economic Forum. So when you when you look at who is behind the water reform, <clears throat> so you've got a big group called the Boston Consulting Group. You've got J.P. Morgan, who are bankers, 
MasterCard, Bayer, Pfizer, <laughs> funny, AstraZeneca, funny, <laughs> Google, Unilever, L'Oreal, all of these companies are, are partners and profit makers from our water through the United Nations reform of water. So the next and, time, and, so the next time, I think we look at uh, our big bills, and uh, you wonder where to go to the new water regulator, your local council. Just remember, reading up a bit about the United Nations 2030 agenda might not be such a bad idea after all. Or you, or you may just decide to look up the state of Thames water and uh, just look up reports of London schools and houses at this point not being, uh, not having any water or very low pressure for the past 48 hours. Thank you so much for joining Jill and me this morning on another episode of the United Nations SDGs. Our number is 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate realitytech.radio, whatever you do. Have a great day and appreciate your water. Long may it last. Have a great Monday. Bye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 